Um, so I was doing research this week mm-hmm. and it clicked in my brain that I have never done a civil rights activist. I don't think so. Really? You did. And I wrote this down as I was thinking about it. You did Claudette Colvin, mm-hmm. Maya Angelou, mm-hmm. Audrey Lord, mm-hmm. Nina Simone, wow. and Ruby Bridges. Oh my God. And I was like, where have I been? What have I been doing? I mean, I'm not complaining. I had an absolute blast researching all of them. I know. I but feel now under, I feel selfish. I feel undereducated <laughs> in this area. I was like, shit, I must look like an asshole. Oh my gosh. No way. So I, I got my due tonight. Okay, perfect. <laughs> and you, it's because it's a really big one. So mm. I, I can't wait to get like the real full A to Z story. Wild. <laughs> Well, I, we usually say we're not here to talk about that, but we are here to talk about this. We were so on point We're tonight. really on point. On no, topic. no bitter banter at all. No. Um, welcome to Herstory. On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. And we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind... We're drinking the entire time. And we're not historians. Absolutely not. <laughs> professional Googlers, professional mm-hmm. drinkers, mm-hmm. not historians. No. No one is giving us a deg- degree for any of this particular research. No. They would Mm-mm. laugh in our faces. We we just barely cite our sources. Yeah. Not I mean, MLA, <laughs> not APA. Quite literally, 50% of my research came from Wikipedia this week because... <laughs> Everything else on my person is in Spanish. So hey, listen, this, you, this is your second one this season like that. <laughs> I know. Um, but yeah. And just so you know, this season is extra special because we are doing all listener requests. And it's been a blast because some of these requests we got a while ago and have just been trying to squeeze them in. Mm-hmm. And some we know nothing about these people and some we know everything about them. And it's been exciting. It really has been. But before we take our journey. You're on a journey of your own. I don't know what you're doing. You're meditating. <laughs> you're meditating. For some reason with this podcast. With on. this podcast. <laughs> maybe it's soothing to you. Who knows? Um, <laughs> listening to us mess up times, dates, places, names, pronunciations. Right. It makes you feel good about yourself. It makes you feel really fucking good. But you can't should. open your eyes while you're meditating. You can't. So you can't look at a picture of these women. So in order to get a mental picture in your meditative state, We are going to describe what these women look like so you can really just see them in action in your head. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing? What does she look like? I am doing the like mountain of a woman, Mm. Rosa Parks. Yes. And she is 5'3 and small and what most people would describe as soft spoken and meek, which is actually like how she looks like she Mm. looks soft-spoken and and meek as well she has a cute smile with a slight gap between her front teeth her hair was typically parted in the center or slightly to the side and then pulled back in a low bun she wore wire-rimmed spectacles and she had medium to light skin complexion and that's because of her mixed ancestry which we'll Mm. go into when we talk about her and then she just has really kind eyes even in her mugshot she's got really (laughs) kind eyes she has a really fantastic mugshot it's one of the better ones it's the daintiest of mugshots and i'm obsessed with it she be what is it she be small but mighty yes that's exactly (laughs) exactly her okay who are you doing and what does she look like okay i'm doing remedios varo she had pale skin, these like wide set almond shaped eyes that kind of like went up in the corners, like 
She looks a lot like Sophia Loren. Ooh. Yeah, she's beautiful. She has like a thin nose with a bit of a hook at the end, kind of downturned lips. And in my favorite series of photos of her, she's wearing like this white turtleneck and she's kind of looking up and then she's kind of looking off to the side. But her long, dark, wavy hair is kind of like piled up, but then swept over as if she just emerged from a storm. And she is just absolutely stunning like and I kind of love that like she's never like smiling in her photos she's very artistic looking because she was an artist Mm. so that's what she looked like she's absolutely beautiful very high fashion in her photos kind of I mean she had a very classic look okay like sometimes she's just in like she just like you know there's not a ton of pictures of her Mm. but she was always just wearing kind of like things that were in style in the 30s and things that are in style now just like nice simple trousers a nice clean top like just I don't know she just had a very classic sense of style about her I love a classic look I do too like she could exist at literally any time or place that's perfect so that's what she looked like good thing we do women (laughs) from all times and places (laughs) so Drinking part of the podcast. Drinking part of the podcast. This is what we're getting to because I want to know what we're about to drink. So this actually kind of looks like a Valentine's Day cocktail. It definitely does. And I did not mean it to. So I kind (laughs) of planned this out perfectly because last week I was doing Rosie the Riveter and I already knew this week I was going to do Rosa Parks. Yeah. So I purposely did not use anything with the word rose in it last Mm. week. Um, So here it all is. (laughs) Here we go. Here we go. So this is called the You May Do That. And it is lightly muddled raspberries in the bottom of a cocktail shaker with an ounce of gin, a half an ounce of lemon juice, and two dashes of rose liqueur. Or you could use rose water if you want it to be less alcoholic. Um, Either way is fine. And then you pour it into a glass and top it with sparkling rosé. And then you garnish it with some raspberries, and then you just drink it up. Love it. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. It's just the right amount of perfumey. Yeah. Because every other time we've used rose liqueur, I feel like it's too much. And violet, too. It's and violet. too much. It's, it's a lot. You have to be incredibly delicate with it. And this... I mean, I feel like it's February 14th. Yeah. This is, <laughs> I mean, this could be served at a tea shop at your next date. Absolutely. You, there could be like a ring, an engagement ring in the bottom of the glass. Yes. And you could accidentally choke on it. That's what this cocktail looks like. Yes. Um, I also love that you mentioned the rose water because we don't really talk about this very often, but like, you know, people suggested to us us making like virgin drinks. Yeah. Um, just because there are a lot of people out there who don't drink. So I feel like you could pair this with like a really nice like like seltzer, like a LaCroix or something, like rose water and LaCroix. And I feel like it would in ra- fresh raspberries. And I yeah. feel like it would be absolutely delicious. And it would. And the, and the other thing is lime juice and gin. So just, or yeah. lemon juice and gin. So take out the gin. Yeah, exactly. And you're fine. Yeah, absolutely. Sober Sally's. Sober Sally's. We hear you. We, we feel love you. you. We do um, love you. I saw this really great article recently that was like, please put something on the drink menu at your wedding that's non-alcoholic. Yeah. Because like the bartenders, like it makes people feel so uncomfortable when they go up to the bar and they're like, what do you have? And they're like, we got beer, we got wine, we got gin, we got rum. And they're like, no, non-alcoholic. And they're like, 
oh, there's a cooler out back. And like, they're like, oh, the kid's cooler. Yeah, the Coke. The Coke. Thanks you know for what the, I'm saying? The like, Capri Sun. <laughs> yeah, I saw that too. I, so, it's a wonderful point. Yeah. So it's already hard enough for people, especially, I mean, there's some people who choose not to drink for other reasons, but mm-hmm. especially if you're somebody who is struggling or in recovery, yeah, uh, it's very hard to be at events. So let's all try to make it easier on those people, please. Yeah. Please. Kind of like John Laney just said one of his stand-up specials. God, you mean producer like, senior? <laughs> they're like, John, would you like this old turnip? Would that be good for you? <laughs> He's like, people just don't know what to offer you. <laughs> is that fine? <laughs> Uh, okay. So are you ready to tell me what you know about Rosa Parks? I'm ready. So I know that she was like this really integral part of the bus boycotts in the South. I know the Montgomery bus boycotts. Yes. And uh, I know that Claudette Colvin came before her because I did her story. I know that people have this opinion of her that she was just this nice, kind old lady who happened upon a bus and then didn't want to move. And that's the box we like to put her in. But she was always a very integral part of the civil rights movement. I think she was like the secretary of the NAACP or something like that. And uh, like people think that it was like an accident that this happened, but it absolutely was not. And uh, I don't know what happened to her really before or frankly after the Montgomery bus boycott, but I'm excited to learn because we only know of her as doing this one thing that people frankly don't even understand. So yeah, I, um, it's something that I was talking to my kids about because Mm -hmm. I know when I was a kid, you know, Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. You're taught about really young during like Black History Month in mm-hmm. school. Like those are the people you talk about. And I just as a kid assumed she got on a bus. She said no. And the next day, the white people came around and realized <laughs> yeah. the error of their ways. Like, Who dare would tell a little old woman <laughs> to get up from her seat? We have to end racism. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that I, was the last straw. <laughs> and I, it's just very funny that that's what was in my brain as a child. And then as I got older, I was like, oh, she was arrested. Oh, this is civil disobedience. Oh, this is a whole timeline. So, oh, yeah. I'm really glad that you said that. My story has several sources. I listened to the podcast Historical figures I listened to history chicks uh I read Rosa Parks my story which is like her um it's not a memoir but it's just in her writing what Mm -hmm. happened and obviously Wikipedia several articles several YouTube videos and as we like to call this type of woman on the podcast she is a banger Mm -hmm. banger meaning everybody knows about her she transcends continent race religion everybody knows who they are and I am humbled to tell this story for sure So let's do this. (laughs) All right. As you said, Rosa was not the only person who was fed up in this country. And she wasn't even an accident that was in the right place at the right time. She educated herself. She practiced protesting with civil disobedience. And then she became the catalyst and the face of the entire civil rights movement. And here is her story. (laughs) So her early life. Rosa was born Rosa Louise McCulley, and she was born in Tuskegee, Alabama on February 4th, 1913. Her mom was a teacher. Her mom's name was Leona, and her mom was actually really highly educated and actually had some college credits, which was rare for women of color in that time period. And her dad was a carpenter. His name was James, and he was actually a really good carpenter in high demand. And her parents actually got married the day the Titanic left Europe whoa weird right weird weird little factoid 
<laughs> in terms of her ancestry, in addition um, to her parents, her great grandfather had Scott Irish ancestry, hmm. and her great grandmother on the other side had native american ancestry really yeah so she's got like this blend of cultures all like culminating in the united states well it's interesting too because they're all like oppressed cultures Mm because like irish people had it pretty fucking rough oh yeah people really hated them Mm -hmm. (laughs) so you have african irish and native american all in this one little person right (laughs) And it's just like, can you imagine that bubbling inside of like my entire no. life? And just like the generational like trauma of all of that. Yeah. Like that's insane. It is. And and she knew from a young age like that inequality was wrong. And we're going to see that in her story as a child. She did suffer from some poor health as a kid with chronic tonsillitis, but mm. I couldn't find anything else about that except that like healthcare was hard to get for, you know, poor families, let alone poor black families. So mm. it wasn't like things were available. Much like many families in the area, there was this bull weevil bug that destroyed the crops and the economy one year. So her parents had to move in with her dad's parents so she she's living with her paternal grandparents and her parents and and her little brother but her parents soon separated her dad said he's like i'm going out to find work but then pretty much abandoned them so now her mom leona and her and her brother are living with their in-laws who like had the son that just abandoned them so they get up And moved to Pine Level, which is on like a little farm outside of Montgomery to live with Leona's parents. So now they're living with their maternal grandparents on a farm. Okay. And the mom, Leona, goes back to work as a teacher to get paid so that she can help support the family. So this is a very modern story. There's a single mother. Mm -hmm. She's going to work. The grandparents are staying with the kid. Like we see this happen all over, you know, when families get broken and like people working together to raise kids. Mm -hmm. Her grandfather could have passed for white. He looked, he was very, very, very light skinned. um, But he hated, hated white people. He was old enough that he was actually a slave when he was a small child oh and they didn't feed him. <gasps> so he, the only way he got food was by like begging the cooks in oh the kitchen. God. So her grandfather was just like feeling awful about it, but he was also really bold. He wouldn't let people call him by his first name, which most people did to people of African-American descent. He would introduce himself as Mr. James or sorry, Mr. Edwards, which was his last name and like shake people's hands and look them in the eye and be like, no, I, I belong here. But then her grandfather tried to go on this like journey to Africa with the universal Negro improvement association and got rejected because he looked too light skinned. (gasps) Shit. That sucks. And it's just like, he was just, he was too, you know, dark to be white and then like too light skinned to be, you know what I mean? To be considered black enough. It was like this poor man is just like, I'm just trying to like fit into this culture. Yeah. I feel like we've done a couple stories of like with people with that exact situation where like, I like they cannot turn a corner without being like fucked over Mm -hmm. just because of their their specific tone. Yeah. And I mean, it's horrible. And I it's something that I've never experienced, but I'm sure any person of color and I would love to hear your examples or your stories could could tell us, hey, this is something that happened to me because of my 
specific skin tone. Yeah. Because I'm sure it's different no matter who you are. Yeah. No, absolutely. And it's crazy. So after the Civil War, the KKK had actually started to shrink, but it was going through a resurgence during Rose's childhood because of the increased African-American rights throughout the country. Um, And let's be absolutely clear. The KKK is a domestic terrorist hate group that grew to 4 million people in her area by the time. Just in her area? Yeah. Like, like, do what do you do? Do you register? Do you register for the KKK? I don't know what you do, but they said it was 4 million. Um, And her grandfather, because you could hear KKK activities happening outside their houses at night her grandfather would sit in the living room on his chair all night with his shotgun in his lap and the Klansmen knew this so it was like a death sentence to go into that house so they kind of let it be but Rosa saw this as a child and she would sleep on the floor next to him to help protect the family oh my god which is I how can you put that on a child yeah so even when she was young, she was known for not taking people's shit. <laughs> there was a white boy one day roller skating down the street and she wasn't doing anything, but she was just on the sidewalk and he like pushed her to the ground. So she got up and like pushed him back. <laughs> like, ah, who the fuck are you? But um, the white mom freaked out and obviously yelled at her and they exchanged words. She just hated inequality um she attended black methodist churches as a child which they started off being churches that promoted abolition and then switched after um abolition was approved to civil rights like and it was like a big part of preaching on sunday mornings so she was very indoctrinated in the like this is equal inequality and i'm not okay with it um and you know Walking down the street. She loved to play outside. There was something about her. She loved being out. She loved being in the woods. But anytime she would come across like a crew of white kids, they would like throw rocks at her and like just treat her like shit while she was outside. But her earliest memory of understanding inequality was when she would have to walk to school. And she would see as she was walking a bus full of white kids going half the distance Mm. to a school that she would have to walk to a school that's much farther away, but had no ride. So that really ingrained in her mind. And I think this early memory is just like buses. That is really tampering with people's rights because you can't get anywhere. Right. And it's not like a one-time event. It's every day. That is an everyday, like, well, it's almost like it created a Pavlovian response in her to be like, I fucking hate that. Yeah. Like this is a baseline like access issue of like if I lived even just a little bit further away, I couldn't get to school at all. Right. Like and these kids are being shipped and like bussed around wherever the fuck they need to go for like a half mile walk. Yeah. Meanwhile, you know, kids of color are walking twice as far. (sighs) That's so fucked. Yeah, it really is. So she attended rural schools until she was 11. When she was enrolled in the industrial school for girls in Montgomery. So now she's going to go to a city school. It's the best Montgomery education for young black girls. There are 300 black female students and all white teachers. But all these white teachers were from the north. And they came to Montgomery 
to set up this school. Specifically, Miss White set it up. The school motto or what they lived by was, I should not set my sights any lower than anyone else. And they taught these black girls to have ambition and that they were worth it. That's incredible. It is so cool. Um, by eighth grade, though, the school had to close because obviously Montgomery did not approve of this education. It was burned by arsonists twice. Oh, my God. Um, and even while she was going there, she couldn't pay the tuition. So Rosa worked from on the weekends from when the sun came up to when the sun came down in like fields with her grandfather to like help make enough money. And then on school days, she would work as a custodian after school to like help clean just so she had enough money to go there. Oh, my God. I know. And after it closed down. Rosa then went to a laboratory school that was for black students who wanted to become teachers. This is like her high school, her secondary school. But she gets a little bit into it, her dreams to be a teacher like her mom. And then her grandmother gets really sick and can't work anymore. And then her mom gets really sick and can't work anymore. So Rosa has to drop out and becomes the primary caregiver for her entire family. Oh, my God. Her two. This is high school age. Her two grandparents, her mom and her little brother. She's the primary caregiver. Oh, my God. I know. That's so much pressure for her. Yeah. For for a teenage girl. Like, I cannot even imagine. As we all know, in the 20th century, the Confederate states, the previous Confederate states, decide. Well, I think they would still call themselves that. Some people. (laughs) They, They adopted the Jim Crow laws, which disenfranchised black and many poor white people as well, but definitely people of color. It was like super segregation era hospitals libraries school transportation park benches drinking fountains you know those famous pictures where it's like colored whites Mm -hmm. like that was this era and obviously Jim Crow is from a horrible blackface joke from 1928 and just the racial segregation in public facilities was like crazy and I know I mentioned it at the beginning but the book Rosa Parks My Story is a really great read it's written for younger readers because in her old age when she was older she was really worried that the youth of America didn't understand what they fought for so it was written for people who are lower readers to read it and Mm -hmm. it's very good and very quick because Mm -hmm. it gives you a lot about her background yeah so when Rosa's 18 she meets Raymond Parks so we noticed this last name. <laughs> That's always a funny part in the story where like, and she meets a man named Raymond Parks. <laughs> this is going to be like, her husband. I see where this is going. It's going to get a little wild when we get closer to people from our generation who don't change their last name. I know. We're going to be like, what's that? <laughs> what's so funny is that happens in my story because she has like a bunch of lovers and stuff. So like there really isn't a moment where like, and then she meets Miss. that's her last name (laughs) um so she meets him he's a sharply dressed man he's got this great global understanding about inequality he's a barber and you know barbers Mm. talk to everybody they know everybody's business just like a bartender Mm -hmm. like they're all around um he liked her right away. Second date is like proposing marriage. He's ten, ah. he's 10 years older than her. He's 28 and she's 18. Oh, my goodness. Um, and right away, um, he, she was like not 100% into it because he was super light skinned like her grandfather. And oh. she was like, I don't think he's going to understand the struggle I went through this, that and the other. But then 
she got to know him and she grew to understand that like he's super sharply dressed, but they kicked him out of school as like a really young kid and he can't do all these other things that I can't do. And like she's learning as a late teenager, like he's just as disenfranchised as I am regardless. Mm -hmm. So in 1932, Rosa married Raymond Parks. She was 19 and he was 29. Mm. He was a member of the NAACP chapter in Alabama. At the time, they were collecting money to support the defense of the Scottsboro Boys. For people who aren't familiar with that case, this was a a group of young black men falsely accused of throwing nine people off of a train and raping two women. Kind of bogus charges. You can look into the story more. Um, But her husband organized this secret defense money fund to help them out legally which could get him in huge trouble Mm. but he never let rosa sign sexism (laughs) come to the meetings because she couldn't run fast enough to get away from the police in case they were raided what so the naacp we're gonna see um rosa is not just a warrior for black people, but for women, which I did not know until I did this research. I didn't know that either. She is fighting from birth to death for women's rights as well. That's incredible. And it's very, very cool. Um, And like once they got married, you know, the NAACP meetings are in their living room. In their living room, they're having the Alabama chapter NAACP meetings, but the men would show up heavily armed in case the KKK showed up. Right. And she just hated that. So she would walk outside and sit on the porch with her head in her hands and just wait for the meeting to be done. And they would leave. And she was just so uncomfortable. She was like, are they going to get in a fight? Is, like, the KKK going to come? Like, are the police going to come? And then things get out of hand? Like, I don't know what's happening. Right. Well, that must be so hard to be actively inviting. Like, and, like, knowing, like, the end cause is good. But, like, what they have to do at the moment to, like, even have that meeting is, like, it's like a ticking time bomb. They're armed like, militia. Exactly. Yeah. And like, it's scary. It's super scary. Like, I don't want anyone coming into my house with a fucking gun. No. Like, it's <laughs> not. Especially no, not loaded and set you. on my dining room table. No. No, it's not okay. Yeah. My friend went to a wedding recently and it was like a backyard kind of whatever, small wedding because obviously COVID. And he was like, yeah. And me and the groom started wrestling in the backyard, as you do on the eastern shore of Maryland. Right. And he was like, Beer I football. tackled him and a gun fell out of his tuxedo. Who brings oh, a gun to a wedding? His own wedding. This is the groom. He's getting married and he has a gun in his pocket. I was like, I hate that. Like, was that for a photo op? No. <laughs> no. He this just- was at the end of the night when they're all drunk. He just had it in his pocket the whole time. And I want to be clear for all our listeners. Maryland does not have open carry laws either. (laughs) Unless you have a very specific license, you cannot open carry a gun. Oh, my God. I was like, I no, thank you. Please, dear God. Please, dear God. Oh, my goodness. Uh, um, I've only been in the room twice with drunk people with guns, and I was very oh, uncomfortable. It's not. No, it's not that fun. is not. Uh, I, there's a picture of me holding an AK-47 in the back of a bar when I was like 17. No, there's not. Yes, there is, and it's my greatest shame. I was super drunk and like 17. and I, <laughs> I cannot believe I didn't know that. Oh, my God. And it's me with the gun in my... I was like... And it's a huge... 
And a huge gun. It's an assault rifle. It's an assault rifle. Oh, God, Katie. <laughs> I'm so embarrassed right now. Listen, when your nieces listen to this in the future, <laughs> they're going to know. Wow. Oh, that's a wowza. Maggie Wallace knows exactly what picture I'm talking about. <laughs> Thanks, Maggie Wallace. Um, anyways. <laughs> Serious wowza moment. Okay. So Rosa worked a lot of jobs ranging from domestic work to hospital aid. And at her husband's urging, she finished high school in 1933 when less than 7% of African-Americans had high school diplomas. So he's like, look, girl. You were a teenager. You dropped out to support your family. Let me get you. Like, you're still 19 or 20 years old. You can go back and finish, and it won't be weird. Just finish. Just fucking do it. I love that. So he sends her back. So now Rosa started to really hate the sexist assumptions after she graduates of the NAACP Mm. and that her husband could go into danger and go to meetings, but she could not. So in 1943, Rosa starts attending meetings and joins the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP and was sexistly elected as secretary (laughs) because she was the only woman. Uh, And the chapter president, Edgar Nixon, maintained that, and this is a quote, women don't need to be nowhere but in the kitchen. So when Rosa asked him, uh, why am I here then? He said... I need a secretary and you're a good one. <sighs> okay. You know, this story was going here. <laughs> I did not. And it's infuriating. Yeah. So it's like on top of racism, she's also dealing with sexism. That I, I hate that so much. And it's almost like how I feel when like women post things today that are like, well, I just think that women are better suited to be at home and in the kitchen. And like, I just think that's God's wish. And let our husbands vote for yeah. us. And it was like, whoa, like, like <laughs> pump the brakes. A girl my age posted something like that recently. Ooh. And I wanted to like shake her. Man, uh, I I know right now, like every woman of color shaking their head like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We fucking know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, I know. I know. I'm dealing with race um, and gender constantly. <laughs> Thank you. Always. <laughs> um, in 1944, in her role as secretary, she decides, you know what? I am going to investigate this uh, gang rape of Reese Taylor. This is a black woman who was gang raped on the way home from church no. by white men. Her friend corroborated it. The men admitted to it, and they were not taken into custody by the Alabama police. I. This is like <laughs> Ahmaud Arbery, but like in the past where they're like, yeah, of course I killed him. And and everybody's like, okay, well then arrest them. And they're like, eh, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Seems fine. Seems okay. It's like, we have all the pieces. Just fucking do it. Like, it's, what is the problem? <laughs> I mean, racism, racism is the problem, but. Uh-huh. Okay. So Rosa for the NAACP volunteers to get national attention to this case. So. She's going to Reese Taylor's house and interviewing her and getting all the details. And police are like standing outside trying to intimidate her. And she's writing letters to the governor and the local news and the national press and no charges. And her whole goal 
is to get scrutiny on the Alabama police and the Alabama governor. And eventually, one of her letters gets into northern newspapers. And things blow up and pressure gets put on the Alabama governor. So he had to act and have the men convicted and tried. but Or had have the men tried. They didn't get convicted, of, of course. course. Right? Because they raped a black woman. But... The Chicago Defender called this the strongest campaign for equal justice to be seen in a decade, but they didn't know it was coming. <laughs> it's also like unbelievable that like it took that much just to get a kangaroo trial at the bare minimum. Right. Because you know that that was not a fair and equal trial. It wasn't. I mean, it was an entirely no white way. jury. Yeah. It, but I mean, come on. But it's come just like on. the fact that she is... She's going to the NAACP. Not only am I going to be part of this chapter as the only woman, but I'm going to go around and interview rape victims and try to get them justice. Mm-hmm. So she is just earning points for me every step of the way. <laughs> so in the 40s, Rosa and her husband then became members of the League of Women Voters. And I bring this up because she also held a job at Maxwell Air Force Base, which, despite its location in Alabama, was funded federally and federal grounds did not allow segregation. So Rosa gets a job there and she said that Maxwell opened her eyes. She could eat at any table she wanted. She could ride any train bus or trolley she wanted on the grounds. And she just loved President Roosevelt, loved him. And she wanted to vote for him, but she kept getting rejected to register to vote oh my god so um they would close black voting registration and polling places early they would make lines go really slow intentionally they would intimidate black voters they would give literacy tests they would give poll taxes if you were poor and black the chances you could register to vote were very slim rosa was turned down three times even though she waited in all the lines there were 31 black voters in montgomery alabama 31 31 31 total that is bananas that makes no sense it doesn't that's the definition of like voter suppression exactly that's horrible and she she's trying that they told her she failed the literacy test but she's one of the few people with a high school degree what so like Many of the black people did not even get to finish school. She's one of the few people with a degree, and they told her, you failed the literacy test. Are you kidding? There's no way. No. No way. There's absolutely no way. So then Pearl Harbor happens, and her little brother, who is not even allowed to vote, is drafted into the war. Oh, my god! Which we've talked about in other episodes where black men were killed on army bases just for being black. Yeah. Um, and I mean, fortunately, a story like that did not happen to her brother, but she's watching Nazi POWs walk through the front door of restaurants and their black American guards have to go through the back to then come in and guard the Nazis. That's unbelievable. I mean, the the white Nazi prisoners had more rights than black American soldiers absurd and she's just like i I can't yeah so then she gets this job as a housekeeper and a seamstress for a white couple and this couple grew to respect her and to love her and they help rosa attend the highlander fold school which was an educational center for activism in tennessee so she goes away 
away from her husband, away from Alabama, and she's in a group of people where her and these white people live together in this like dormitory area. They called her Miss Parks. They f- served her meals. They, um, y- you know, it was complete integration, and she's learning activism all along the way. She comes back to Alabama, eyes open. And then we have this massive string of events. Emmett Till dies. Uh, and well, she obviously murdered. He's murdered. Yeah. And uh, obviously she's not directly involved in that, but it keeps bringing it up in her story. There's this weight on her shoulders. Like yeah. everything's pressing down. It's pressing down. Then there are four black men in her area that also get murdered and the weight on her shoulder. She's going to these memorials and is like, I can't handle this. Um, and her and her husband start to pick up the pace. They're working more cases. They're working longer hours. And this is wow. They're holding full-time jobs. They're holding full-time jobs on their lunch breaks. They're making calls for the NAACP. And then they come home at night and research cases together to make sure that. These and without computers, no, so computers. Like, <laughs> this is all literally in the books they are making like, sure these people are getting justice and and they're just working so hard and rosa specifically is looking into police ignorance of sexual assault inequity so there's a lot of black men who are being falsely accused of rape and either they're given an all-white jury if they're lucky or lynched if they're unlucky and then there are black women who claim rape all the time and people either a don't take them seriously if it's a black man that raped them or b don't even care if it's a white man yeah so she's dealing with that and then when she's 34 years old she goes in front of the alabama state naacp they have a convention and rosa gives this speech to a crowd meek quiet little rosa which she was and gets a standing ovation the people are so impressed with what she has to say it's so impactful she's so knowledgeable and intelligent and ready to go that at 34 years old she's just exciting the crowds everybody in montgomery knows who she is well and i think that that's why like not to bring it to like something super political nowadays but like it's so frustrating watching like Trump make speeches because he has no content. He's just boisterous and like annoying and loud. He's and bantering. He's ban- yeah. And or wait, what's it? Pandering. Pandering. He's pandering yes. to the crowd. And then you have someone who actually has something to say, and like they just deliver it very straightforward. And it's like yeah, because like that's what actually should be getting a standing ovation. Right. You know, not this fucking lunatic. Quick. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, really, really and truly, I thought the Antichrist would be more attractive. So, in 1953, Rosa Parks turns 39. This is the really kind of the turning point in the civil rights movement, but not quite yet. In Baton Rouge, there's a bus boycott. And we don't really talk about the bus boycott in Baton Rouge very much. But it only lasted a couple days, and... Rosa realizes they lost $1,600 a day. Ooh. And the NAACP and her are like, hmm, 
<laughs> that makes sense. And then they start looking into it because Rosa loves her research. And she looks into this electric trolley boycott from 50 or 60 years ago. I want to be very clear that black people in the United States had been pissed for a long fucking yeah. time. Like this. So th she's looking at a trolley boycott from 50 years before her boycott. And it's like, OK, this is doable. Totally doable. 1954, Brown v. Board of Education. 1955, Claudette Colvin, who's part of Rose's youth group, who Katie did a whole story on, and you should go listen to it. She refuses to get up. She's arrested, and the NAACP's like, maybe, oh, wait, but she's pregnant, and she's a teenager, so fuck that, which is also should not be a part of the case. It doesn't matter it if doesn't you're matter. a young, single teenager. You should still be able to be the face of a movement. And then a woman named Joanne Robinson, who is also kind of in Rose's situation, a little older, a little more educated. It's like, I'm really into bus boycotts. I fucking love <laughs> bus boycotts. And I think <laughs> it's going to happen. It's my absolute jam. Yeah. So she doesn't even go to the colored section anymore. She just goes in and sits in the front seat. <laughs> Joanne Robinson balling hard. Wow. And then the bus drivers just like scream at her, like berate her until she like gets up crying and like runs away. But like she, she never got arrested, but like she was doing, she was the doing thing it yeah. of like sitting there. Um, so in 1900 in Montgomery, they had passed an ordinance to segregate public transportation and each bus driver was empowered to assign seats. And if the bus filled up, the seats would be given up by a person of color to a white passenger. Over time, this developed into moving this sign back and forth, which, again, Katie did a great job with the Claudette Colvin episode. You can hear this. There's, like, a sign that says, like, colored section, and you could move it back if mm -hmm. there were too many white people. So the first couple rows were only white people, and then the other section was movable, even though 75% of the customers were black. I want this to be clear. The customer is always right. Where did that come come in? Well, and that was what was so frustrating when I was researching that is I was like, okay, like I, I always understood it as when I was a kid, I was like, okay, like just like the back of the bus, like as a general area. But it was literally like if there was one person in an entire section. Horizontal row. Yeah. You could not like if the bus was entirely full of black people and there was one person, one white person person in the front row in the front row you could not sit anywhere near them even if it was like at capacity yeah it's and they could even like and that's the thing again like they have this ultimate power so they could even be like you know what i don't want anyone anywhere near me two so, rows back yeah three two rows, rows back. back yeah they set the rules and there were like in every bus driver was like yeah this is my fucking day i'm gonna tell these people to get out like you know what i'm saying yeah. like i'm sure they were waiting for that moment the white bus drivers and can you think think about all the things you think about on the way home from work what am i gonna make for dinner what am i gonna buy my kids for christmas what am i gonna do this when am i gonna do that and like now you also have this added stress of Am I going to get kicked off? Am I yeah. actually going to get there? Do I actually get to sit down? I've been working all day at a factory standing up and I'm 80. What exactly is going to happen in my life? Well, and also just like the mental math you have to do of like, okay, well, if a bus comes and there's too many white people on and I can't get on, then I have to wait for the next bus. And like, so maybe I won't, I'll get home at like 730 or eight tonight. Like, you know what I'm saying? Just the With no cell phones to text and be like, I, yeah. wasn't, I wasn't beaten to death today. I know. I'm still sitting at the bus stop. Thank you. Just again like you were saying with the weight on her shoulders just the mental anguish of like having to change your movement in everyday life yeah 
to bend to the rules of this horribly racist government. Like, And one of the even bigger problems in Rose's situation is that they didn't only have segregated seating, they had segregated entrances. So they would have to go in and pay at the front of the bus, and then you would have to get out, uh, walk around back, and get in the back of the bus because you couldn't walk past the white people in the front of the bus. So they're like cattle carring like black people, which is just absurd. And of course, like we said, the rows. If there's one white person in a row, everybody moves back, even if there's three other available seats. So for years, black passengers had complained that this was unfair. Rosa herself says that her resisting a move was not the beginning of the black resistance or protest or civil disobedience. Well, and that's what's the press because I feel like she had been saying that the whole time. Yeah. And people were like, shh, 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 no, just pretend it was one. you. Pretend it was you. You're the one. Just- you're the one. <laughs> uh, in fact, there were other times that Rosa had actually gotten in trouble for resisting on a bus. One particular rainy day in 1943, now we're going back in time a little Mm. bit, Rosa had entered a bus, paid for her ticket, but it was pouring down rain. She was told to walk out and go around back. The bus driver that day was Mr. James F. Blake. Actually, not Mr., just James F. Blake. Fuck him. (laughs) Rosa, (laughs) Rosa was like, it's raining. I'm not going outside. This is absurd. So she walked down the center aisle and sat in the colored section. And then Blake comes back and tells her she has to leave. She's like, I don't want to go out in the rain. Like, I paid my fare. I'm sitting here. It's fine. Uh, So he roughs her up a little bit, throws her, drags her through the bus, and throws her out into the rain and leaves her (gasps) stranded. Oh, my God. Uh, She vowed that day to never get on a bus that he was driving again and she checked every single bus and if he pulled up she would sit at the bus stop and wait for the next one. Oh my god for 12 years <gasps> but as fate would have it on december 1st 1955 after working all day in a factory using her lunch break to research and make calls for the naacp she gets to the bus stop it's packed. She's like, fuck. I'll just run some errands first. She goes back, runs some errands, comes back to the bus stop. And she's like, okay, got to get home. So it's busy. This is December 1st. It's Christmas season. Mm-hmm. It's cold out. You don't want to be sitting. Like, everything's wild. And I know it's Montgomery, and it's not as cold as the Northeast, but it's still. Yeah. It's different. So <sighs> she gets on the bus around 6 p.m. She pays her fare goes to the first row of empty colored seats in the back of the bus. Did not realize that the driver was James F. Blake. Oh, my God. Same fucking driver that threw her in the rain 12 years earlier. As the bus traveled, the whites only rows are starting to fill up. Getting a little antsy, right? At the third stop, several white passengers enter the bus and seats had to be taken. In the colored section. So the driver stands up from the front, comes and moves the colored section sign back a row. The three other passengers get up and move. But Rosa was in the aisle, which means she had to purposely move her knees to the side and let the man next to her walk past and move to the back of the bus. As soon as she saw James F. Blake, 
I think something clicked in her mind yeah. that I'm not doing this again. Yeah. So uh, she even scoots over after the man leaves, the other black man scoots over into the window seat to allow the white passenger to have the seat next to her in the aisle so he wouldn't have to touch her or breast pass or whatever. Later, Rosa recalls that when she saw that driver, it was like her seat was wrapped in a quilt on a winter's night. Like, I'm not getting up. I'm cuddly, which is what you said about Claudette Coven. She was pinned to the seat. Claudette was like, I literally could not move. And she said she was like, and because like what the, my favorite part about her story is she had been learning about incredible like black history figures that day in school that whole month. And she was like, I literally felt like Harriet Tubman was like pressing my shoulders down and telling me, don't you dare fucking move. And I think it's like it's like what was happening to her was yeah. like all these things in her life were all of a sudden pressing down on her. And she yeah. was like, I can't. Yeah, I physically can't. So. Uh, James Blake says, uh, why don't you stand up? She says, I don't think I should have to stand up very calmly. She's wearing white gloves, legs are crossed, Mm -hmm. hands folded, very polite. Uh, he says, well, if you don't stand up, I'm going to call the police and have you arrested. And here's where the name of my cocktail comes in. It's very famous. The shirts that say, nah, Rosa Parks. Yeah. And it's just like, they're very funny. But she didn't say, nah. When he said, I'll call the police and have you arrested, she said, you may do that. And I think that is such a brave statement yeah. to be like, "Call, I'm calling your bluff. Yeah. Call the police then. Yep. And Fucking in such a it. polite way. Yeah. You may do that. Good for you. Like, call the police. So well, again, because there's also so much built in that statement of like, you may do that. Because, again, it's like playing on that thing of, like, you're a white male. Yeah. So, like. You have that privilege. You have that privilege. Yeah. Go ahead. Because. Call them. If I was actually in trouble, if I was actually in danger and I called, they wouldn't do fucking shit. And if I was actually doing something wrong, other people on this bus would try to stop me. Yeah. Yeah. But nobody here is doing anything. Yeah. Everybody here is just sitting. Like, fine. Call the fucking police. I don't give a shit. Call them. Yeah. And um, Rosa on that day was 42 years old. She said, I wasn't physically tired. I was mentally tired. And she knew she got judgy eyes from the people around her who were like, shit, now we have to sit here and wait for the police. And it's December. And they all had meals to cook and Christmas presents to buy and like all these other things. And she's like, sometimes you can't be fucking polite. Like, you can't. She could not be fucking polite that day. She probably looked at a mother who's like, oh, my God, you know, I need to get home. I've got a baby or like a man who's been working in the factory all day with like, you know, grime all over him. But you can't be fucking polite sometimes. Yeah, you can't. Yeah. So they called the supervisor and they called the police. They're not too jazzed to get her off the bus because they walk in and they're like, Look at this small, polite, well-dressed woman. (laughs) Like, this seems horrible. What are we doing? But the police took her away, and she said, why do you push us around like this? And the officer said, I don't know. Oh, my God. But the law's the law, and you're under arrest. Just, I don't know. The police officer is even like this. It's kind of bonkers. Yeah. Um, So she was arrested and taken to jail. They wouldn't let her drink water. Um, which is super weird. That was in her book. Um, 
then she got a phone call and her whole time on the phone she was reassuring people that she hadn't been beaten like that like she's trying to make other people feel good yeah everybody in the community is shocked they're like what rosa you mean the church lady the the youth group lady the quiet one the nice one the sweet 40 year old woman <laughs> really Right. She's the girl yeah, you arrested? The- <laughs> I don't understand. Of all the people. <laughs> and the NAACP is like, yes! <laughs> they are <laughs> through the roof excited that Rosa got arrested. Her husband's freaking out. He's like, please don't do this. Don't become the face of this. This is dangerous. This yeah. is not for you. But yeah. as per the usual, she's like, oh, fuck it, I'm going. <laughs> so Nixon, the president of the NAACP in Alabama, shows up. And bails her out that night. Gives her all the money to get out of jail. <laughs> and uh, he's like, you're going to be the face of this. And she's like, uh, okay. Okay. And then I just, listen, Parks did not originate the idea of protesting on buses or sit-ins. And I want to make that clear. These are some people, including but not limited to, I already named some earlier, but Bayard Rutten, Eileen Morgan, Lily Mae Bradford, Sarah Louise Keys, Claudette Colvin, Ariella Broadford, Susie McDonald, and Mary Louise Smith are all people that would stay in their seats around there. She is not the only one. We cannot go on thinking that there is one right black person for the job. Well, it's just like how we say that we do all sorts of women because women have nuance. I feel like we need to ascribe the same thing to the fucking like civil rights movement. Like there's a lot of nuance in there that we just like to ignore for our own like personal fucking benefit, frankly. And comfort. And comfort. Yeah. Yeah. It's It's like it makes us feel better that we can ascribe these very basic stories to these people who there's just so much more to. And it's horrible because, okay, so in school, um, you know, when I teach about specific historical figures, like mm-hmm. one of the people I teach about is Jackie Robinson. And one of the things we teach and that I taught for a very long time as a not understanding white person, which I've tried to learn since then. And please teach me more, everybody. But that I was like, he was the one that had the right temperament to deal with the baseball. Yeah. league, And it's like, but that's immediately saying that, like, most black people couldn't handle it. Yeah. And that's not okay. And it's not true. Yeah. And it's just, yeah. it's a disgusting thing to think. And it's like, it's not your fault. If you think that you were raised to think that way, but like, let's raise ourselves up. Right. No, it's all about, because I feel like people think that like history lessons are like set in stone. It's like, no, this is the way you do it. And it's like, no, we can always change it. We can always reform and like, Pivot, Refo- pivot, 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 pivot that lesson. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. You got to do it. <laughs> so, okay. A lot of people think that Rosa was like a plant, that the NAACP planted her and this was the day. They subscribed it. They put her there. And even if she was, who gives a shit? It still fucking worked. Right. Yeah. Right. It doesn't matter. So some people see her as like this big mastermind. I don't see that. I see years worth of philosophy and training and thinking and like now that you know her backstory oh yeah this is years in the making she even said in her book i decided to find out what my rights really are what that's interesting is i said and what what do i know i was like it was a very planned orchestrated event which now it does not seem so. But like, also the bus boycotts were planned The bus boycott was planned and orchestrated. Not necessarily that specific day, that specific time. Yeah. But once it happened with Rosa, 
It was like, this is right. Yeah. And they may have said to her at a meeting, you'd be the perfect person for this. Yeah. But I don't know that it was like, hey, December 1st, 1955, yeah. you're going to get on a fucking bus and yeah. you're going to not move. Yeah. Because I think that was my impression that was they were like, OK, here's the date and time. Do it now. Yeah. See, because I always thought that, too. And it doesn't matter either way, actually. No, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Either it doesn't way. Fucking matter. They could have said <laughs> do it. And she was like, hell yeah, I'm going to do this. Or she could have just been like, it's a stressed out day. I'm not fucking moving. Yeah. In both ways, it's equally impactful. Yes, absolutely. So it doesn't matter. So Joanne Robinson, remember our girl from earlier who was like, busboy guys, this is the, this is the <laughs> shit. She goes to the mayor and she's like, listen, Rosa just got arrested. You should like totally handle this. Uh, Please listen. He didn't listen. So she goes and mimeographs 3,500 3, flyers. Uh, the churches are preaching about it on Sunday. The children are bringing these flyers home from school. It gets in the paper and it says, stay off the bus on Monday in protest of the arrest and trial. You can afford to stay out of school for one day. If you work, take a cab or walk. But please don't take the bus on Monday. This is the second time we've read that statement on this podcast. You read that word for word before. Yep, I did. But I did. We need to read it again because it's great. Because I think that's what really impacted me about the Claudette Colvin story and the whole story of the Montgomery bus boycott is like they made do. They were like, yeah, we're not going to do that. So we have to come together as a community. I don't give a shit if you don't know your neighbor. I don't care if you've never spoken to them Figure before in Figure it your the life. fuck out. If you have a car and they need a ride to work, you need to fucking offer them a ride to work yeah. because like we need to be in this fucking together yeah because monday they're thinking 60 percent turnout that's good uh but the day came and it's supposed to be one day everybody goes and watches the empty buses ride by Ugh. it's a hundred percent participation pretty much <gasps> oh almost a hundred percent of people did not ride the buses fred gray is her lawyer and he gets a 30-minute trial for her where she's convicted, of course. <laughs> of course. And is, has to pay $10 and then $4 in court fees, which is like $140 today, which oh is not God. a big deal. But there's a rally afterwards. Yes. And the rally is where it's at because this church gets flooded with cars and people in the parking lot for the previously unheard of Reverend martin luther no. king jr no. <laughs> that's incredible so he's there he's preaching he's like we did it we did it y'all <laughs> like we didn't go to the buses like we fucking did it and he's like of course he didn't say that because yeah. he, he has, <laughs> we fucking did it we fucking did it man <laughs> okay so he fired people up in that speech and it, the bus boycott went from one day to over a year mm. This was not easy. People, you know, taxis at first were charging 10 cents like buses, but then they were told they couldn't. And then, you know, they're carpooling and then they were told they couldn't. That was another thing that pissed me off so much is like they're working around it. And then the city has the gall to, to be like, no. you can't do that. And it's like, this car is my personal fucking property. How dare you tell me what to do with it? I do what I want. I do what I fucking want. It's just, mm, there's so many aspects of this that get you riled up that you don't realize. And there are, there are people walking 20 miles mm. to work. 20 miles. Just so they don't have to ride the buses. So, 
you know, there are white housewives that are like, fuck, I really need my help. So these white housewives start picking up <laughs> like the black women who work in their houses. And then they're like, hey, well, you know what? Like my friend works at the house tours down and like she oh. needs a ride, too. So like they're starting to get in there and their white husbands are like enraged. And the NAACP saw Rosa as like PR rep extraordinaire. Montgomery has found their message from God. It's not great for her, though. She got fired. Her husband lost his job. No. Their landlord raised their rent. They get death threats all the time. And then Raymond is just under so much pressure from this that he starts drinking a whole fucking lot. Then... 57 days into the boycott, Martin Luther King's house gets bombed. (gasps) Then two days later, the head of the NAACP house gets bombed. And let's be clear, Martin Luther King Jr.'s wife and children were in the house. They were fine, but they were in the house. Montgomery decides to criminalize boycotts, and they arrest her again. And then Fred Gray, the lawyer, he is appointed to a middle court, and he brings the case to them, and they decide it's unconstitutional to segregate buses and then it gets taken to the supreme court and on december 17th 1956 over a year later the supreme court decides it is unconstitutional to segregate buses and for over (laughs) a year the buses were empty of colored citizens of montgomery alabama i mean there were buses parked on side streets because they had nothing to do yeah well and that's why I think it's so important for people to keep that in their heads because like I keep seeing these posts that are like just because you're not seeing these posts as much anymore doesn't mean like black lives still don't fucking matter yeah. and like we're still doing shit even though it's not at the top of your news feed anymore for like, sure they did that shit for over a year over a year I was always as a child under the impression it was one day yep me too over a year So now we're going to talk about the after bus years. And this is quite a bit shorter, but I think it's important in her life. So first, after the bus boycotts, even after the Supreme Court case, she's still harassed. Um, And she was the face of this. So there's death threats and they were serious and she couldn't get a job in Montgomery. Nobody would hire her and she has to pay for shit. And she's like, whatever, I'm going to fucking move. So... Her and her husband moved north to Detroit. She gets letters from all over the world. They're sending her letters and they're like, thank you. I'm so impressed with you. I'm so impressed with what you did for your country. She's so influential. And, you know, the whole time she's speaking all across the country, but working menial jobs. Mm. She's working like nine to fives and then speaking everywhere. She was a little tougher than MLK, though. She goes on the record (laughs) as saying, peace can't get us everywhere. And she was a big Malcolm X girl. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like every time we do like a civil rights person, they're either in one camp or the other. Uh And she was just like, Nina Simone was like, Malcolm X is my boy. Absolutely. Like, we have to get crazy. For sure. Um So in 1964, the Civil Rights Act gets passed, of course, Mm -hmm. and things start to really change. But, you know, I mean, thing is still the shit in the United States. So whatever. In Detroit, she there's a little bit higher of a population. So in a big city, she starts to notice housing inequality. This is in the 60s. And she 
starts to regularly work on fair housing projects. So when there was a highway, like, construction urban renewal thing in Mm -hmm. Detroit, 43,000 African Americans get displaced, and she just, like, goes on, like, a whole thing to try to help people. And then there's, like, a huge riot a mile from her house about this. And Rosa worked not only on fair housing, but also to point out the police brutality in the riots (laughs) in Detroit because of the housing thing. And she donated a shit ton of money to that. Mm. Rosa never gave up on civil, civil rights especially for women. In the 1970s, there's a woman named Joanne Little who was in prison or like convicted or charged for using force to defend herself from a sexual predator. Rosa worked her ass off to get this woman out of jail because of wrong, wrongful imprisonment. So Joanne was acquitted of the force that she used to fight off her attacker. And that man was in prison for 41 years. He just got out in 2015. That's insane. Rosa Parks did that. Oh my God. And she's not even like a lawyer. No. Like she's just like an actually trained activist. And a high school educated. Yeah. (laughs) Like, Which is another point I want to make. I feel like people think that activists are just like people who feel very strongly about something. And it's like they can be. They're like lobbyists almost. Yeah, they really are. They're like on the streets lobbyists. Like they have very specific tactics that they use. And it's a really incredible thing. It is. So despite. (laughs) I forgot to turn the lights on. I can't see. I'm old. (laughs) Ellie just turned the flashlight on on her phone because it's so dark in here. It is. The story so long. Okay. Despite everything Rosa was doing, she was not a wealthy woman because she donated all of her money to civil rights causes. And later in life, she relied on donations from church groups and like her husband's pension just to get by. Later in life, she also struggled with like personal and family health stuff. Mm -hmm. She and her husband had like stomach ulcers and then she like slipped on ice and broke a hip. And she was still, still at this point nursing her mother through dementia in a nursing home. I I forgot about that. And then family members start to get diagnosed with cancer in 1977. Her husband dies. And then a couple months later, her brother dies of cancer. So in the 80s, after dealing with her family shit, she rededicates herself to the civil rights and, you know, she's ready to go. She's worried about young Americans. So she starts a civil rights education program. She starts two scholarship funds. She authors two books, Rosa Parks, My Story, and then Quiet Strength, her memoir. Mm. She campaigns against apartheid, which she got really famous for. She spoke all around the country and she gave Pathways of Freedom bus bus tours where she would introduce young people to the Underground Railroad and (gasps) civil rights sites all over the country. That's so cool. On a bus, on bus tours. I love it. In Detroit, she worked at like an administrative government job until she retired in 1988. At 81, the KKK wanted to sponsor a road. And you know how you can do that? Like, oh, the so-and-so middle school sponsors this section of road. But the government couldn't turn them away because if they turn them away, they have to turn everybody away. So instead, they decided to rename that section of highway Rosa Parks Highway. (laughs) (laughs) When she was asked about it, she said, it's always nice to be thought of. Oh, she's the sweetest. And guess 
Katie, what else she did in the 80s? She served on the board of Planned Parenthood. <gasps> really? On the board. I love that. With like the controversial like situation between like contraceptive America and black yeah. women. Like yeah. she was like there, like we can do this. We can figure yeah. this out, which is so cool. Yeah. So in Detroit, Rosa suffered a terrifying incident in her later years where a man broke into her home, <gasps> stole her stuff and punched her in the <gasps> face. No. He recognized her. But she had to go to the hospital. The man got convicted. He was in jail for a long time. But after suffering from that anxiety, she didn't want to return home. So she had oh. to go to like a more expensive apartment, which she didn't have money for. So the owner of Little Caesars opted to pay <laughs> her living expenses for as long as she needed. So you heard it here first, people. <laughs> Little Caesars is okay. <laughs> God damn, do I love some Little Caesars. And the one down the street from me closed recently and I Damn. Could not be more devastated. Well, here's what I'm telling Could you. Could not be more devastated. It's fine. Especially <laughs> now. Wait, it's fine? Are they bad? No, no, no. They're good. Okay. Okay. So in her old age, she began to not pay bills due to forgetfulness. And oh. remember, like, her mom had dementia. Right, it runs in the family. Yeah. So it's like she has to get her financial stuff in order. Yeah. She ends up getting a Presidential Medal of Freedom, a Congressional Gold Medal. She's named by time one of the most... 20 influential people of the century but on october 24th day after your birthday uh, 2005 at 92 years old rosa parks died of natural causes mm -hmm. she outlived her husband and her only sibling she had 13 nieces and nephews the front rows of buses across the country were adorned with black ribbons for her oh my god the first memorial was in Montgomery where Condoleezza Rice spoke and said, I never would have been secretary of state without Rosa Parks. Then her body was taken in a vintage 1955 bus to lie in state at the Capitol Rotunda. 50,000 people came to honor her. She was the first woman ever lied there, laid there. Then she was taken to Detroit for her final memorial and funeral. And she was buried next to her husband and mother. In 2016, her house got threatened with demolition. So a Berlin artist, Berlin, Germany, had the house moved to Germany, <gasps> repaired it, and brought it back to the U.S. to be displayed in Rhode Island. I literally can't understand that. What? <laughs> Somebody, like, the world loved her. The world was like, no, this woman is the most important woman in America, That's and incredible. you guys don't understand. She, of course... Um, now has a Barbie in the female heroine collection. She was the first one That's and so it is cool. the cutest fucking Barbie. <laughs> and she was the modern day, you know, the mother. She's called the mother of the modern day civil rights movement. And better yet, she lived to see the results of her actions. I love that. And that's the story of Rosa Parks. What a great story. Oh Seriously. God. I know our dog is attacking us. <laughs> it's, it's really unbelievable i did not expect yeah. the women's rights stuff i you know and i know it was a long one because she's a banger but she it was really like, is but it was so worth it because she did she just had such an impact you're right just like across the world of like i'm here for it and it's incredible that this person who like wasn't worth anything frankly monetarily yeah you know what i'm saying like she wasn't a wealthy woman and then she gets to lie in state in the capital and have tens of thousands of people come to visit her like that's 
incredible. And it's just, I, it's why I said I was humbled to tell this story. Like, yeah. you know, like I don't deserve to even say her name right. in my mouth. Cause she like, is awe inspiring. And it's just, she never, it was never like anything extra. Yeah. It was just like, she got up and lived every day and did what she thought was right. Yeah. She just got up in the morning and was like, all right, there here's here's my plan for the day. Yeah. And that's like the definition of grinding. She was a grinder. Yeah, and you know, I respect was. that more than anything in the world mm-hmm. is somebody who grinds. Yeah. Um, so that's Incredible. Rosa Parks. I just Incredible. Thank you. I, I don't know if I said this at the beginning, but this again was Emily Hill. And again, <laughs> no, but listen, Emily requested Rosa Parks like two years ago. Oh, and we've shit. been okay. waiting because we've been trying to space out. Um. The civil rights people. The civil it's rights such people. such a big thing. That and like, bangers. Yeah, yeah. They're such incredible stories that, like, it doesn't feel right to, like, sandwich them all into one season. Right. So, like. We don't want to do the Black History Month thing always. Yeah, exactly. We spread out the wealth of all types of women. Exactly. So, that was great. That was Rosa. Um, Let's get more drinks. We need to get more drinks and turn the lights on because it's really fucking dark in here. <laughs> it's, it's scary. We're haunted. We're haunted. We are back. We're back with part two and a whole new, very festive drink. There's a lot of color going on in this one. I think it's beautiful. <laughs> I love this side dip. Okay. Very artistic. <laughs> very artistic. A bartender did this at one of the bars we went to, and uh. I was blown away by it. <laughs> I was you absolutely blown away. It looked drink? beautiful. <laughs> My God. So... I mean, I'm ready to just get right fucking into please, it. Please, okay. please. Do you want to know what this beautiful half-dipped drink is? I do, because I see a spice. <laughs> I see a zest. I see Lock fruit juice. On. I see liquor, ice. So this is called the Surreal Sorceress. <laughs> wow. I know. Wow. A big name. You got big on it. It is tequila, liqueur 43, apricot juice and then you mix that all together and then you zest a lime over the top but you serve it in a glass that's like kind of half dipped in chili powder and smoked paprika Mm. what is liqueur 43 so liqueur 43 is a spanish liqueur okay and i've never had it i don't think you definitely have because i've used it multiple times well then (laughs) I don't know. It's what kind it of like a spice liqueur that has notes like like little notes of like vanilla. Okay. So that's what I like about it. I actually, you know who I used it first for? I bought it for Catherine of Aragon. Okay. I bought it for hers. That's funny. And I absolutely fell in love with it. So Did you see Sazzle underscore 42's comment today or no. message to us? Just so kind and thankful about the Katherine Howard episode. Oh, that's so she was nice. Like, that was exactly what I wanted. Oh. And I'm all here for a roundtable when you see Six the Musical. That so, makes me so Sazzle, happy. We'll have to have you on. To, yes, to do absolutely. Our roundtable. Come on. Please. Okay. So, wow. So this Let's is it. it. The, Let's taste it. the surreal sorceress. Do I drink Cheers. from the chili powder side or not? I'd say maybe do like a little bit of it just half to test half. your half half. Okay. spice level. I love spice. really good mm. it's definitely margarita yes and the chili powder is like subbing for the salt mm-hmm. yeah the the chili powder subbing for the salt and 
I wanted kind of like a mild margarita mm-hmm. because she goes from kind of Spain to Mexico. Okay. So liqueur 43 is a Spanish liqueur. So I wanted to use that. But uh-huh. then I feel like, you know, tequila and like all this is like very like Mexican based. Um, right. So that was the inspiration behind the cocktail. The lime zest is very effervescent. Ugh, I love I it. Love, it smells so good. I love a zest over top of a cocktail. I really I just do like love it's it. It's so fun. Um, I love I mean, you know, I love margaritas. Tequilas mm-hmm. make me wild. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm here for this drink. Thank mm-hmm. you so much. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do you know about Remedios Varo? I know she's a surrealist painter. <laughs> because A, I Googled her earlier today. <laughs> and B, you said that in the kitchen to our friends who are moving junk into my house. Mm-hmm. 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 So that's what I know. Okay. About her. Uh, and earlier you said she was classic and beautiful. So She really is. I find that. I find that rather interesting because like I would feel like a surrealist painter would be kind of like wild in the way they dress. So I'm excited to hear about her life. So please tell me. Okay. I'm sure who, who, wait, who recommended this? So Marian Rivera requested this person and thank you so much. Remedios is super interesting. I hope I do her story justice just because a lot of the sources were in Spanish. <laughs> so I got 99% of this from theartstory.com. And yeah. then the other, I mean, I got like 99% of it from that. And then 50% of it from Wikipedia, which I know the math does not add up. Yeah. But that's what happened. But also, we can always check our sources with Charles Vincent. Absolutely. Our resident artist. Yes. And I feel like I'm so I'm so happy this season that so many people from Central and South America yes. have been requested because it's something that our podcast is sorely lacking in. Absolutely. So thank you so much for pointing out women that like we know nothing about. Yeah. No, definitely. Um, so Marion Rivera, thank you so much. This is a total blast. And I'm so sorry if I, you know, don't do this right. <laughs> but if, if we don't, it means you're one of it the many. It means you're one of the you're many. You're part of good company. So, Remedios was born Maria de los Remedios Alicia Rodriga Vero y Uranga in Angles, which is a small town in the province of Girona in northeast Spain. So, she is born Spanish. Okay. So... Uh, Spanish proper. Spanish proper. Um, So I also don't know if like my pronunciation is correct because I know they have a different kind of pronunciation in Spain than in like Mexico. And I feel like we're taught like Mexican Spanish. Yes. Um, Reading bubble said different language. Yes. Not just repunsonation. Yes. (laughs) Um, So uh, she was born on December 16th, 1908, which was. I didn't know anything about her, but that was later than I thought she was going to be. I thought she was going to be like 1800s because I don't know art history. <laughs> so, I mean, 1908, that's like, I mean, her and Rosa Parks, their lives overlapped. They they do. Absolutely. Because yeah. Rosa Parks was 1913. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So her mother, Ignacia, was a homemaker and a very devout Catholic. And her father, Rodrigo, was a universalist and a hydraulic engineer. Hmm. She was named Remedios in honor of the Virgin de los Remedios or the Virgin of the Remedies because one of her sisters, like, so her mom had basically, like, promised, like, if you give me a child, I will name my first daughter after you. And the first daughter died. And then she had Remedios and she named her that as well. Um, So her two surviving siblings were an older brother, um, 
Rodrigo, and eventually a younger brother, Luis. So due to the father's demanding job, the family moved around a lot between Spain and northern Africa. So she had a lot of really cool experiences as a child, but it ultimately had kind of a negative effect on her because all she really wanted was a home. So she even kept a postcard of Angles with her always because it was like the one town out of all the ones that she had been to that she was like, well, that was where I was born. So like that's technically home because she just felt like her life was always uprooted and all she ever wanted was like a stable place to live. So, and even though she was named after a Catholic saint, she never really felt connected to Catholicism. She felt it was a very claustrophobic religion. Um, and I think it felt especially that way to her because when she was a young girl, one of the few options that they had to educate them was to send them to convent school. Oh. So she was sent to like this basically like Catholic nun boarding school. And she absolutely hated it it's like finishing school on steroids yeah it absolutely is but she developed ways to survive um she dove headfirst into books written by edgar Allan poe jules verne alexander dumas and her listen (laughs) jules verne we've mentioned on this podcast during Mm -hmm. the nelly bly episode Mm -hmm. and edgar Allan poe philadelphia fuck Fuck you you. he's He's ours. ours sorry this is also an episode for emily hill who's currently living in philadelphia so we're sorry <laughs> edgar Allan poe was born and raised in philadelphia but he died here yep and as we- Kroll show says he wrote a spookiest stuff in baltimore in baltimore <laughs> in baltimore and we leave cognac on his grave I- every year <laughs> I also love that you consistently said Alabama. <laughs> Is that not okay? I think most people pronounce it Alabama. No, they don't. I think so. <laughs> I really I love I think I you're right. Know. Let us know. I'm a Marylander, so I am, Alabama is, just, is my... <laughs> I forgot. I forgot. It was so perfect. It was so perfect. <laughs> Alabama. Alabama. Oh, my God. The people from New York who listen to us, Miss Krista, message us how you say Alabama. <laughs> Alabama. <laughs> oh, I hate myself now. Thanks for that. Anyway, Edgar Allan Poe, he's okay. ours. Go he's ahead. He's ours. Um, And then her father also kind of sends her some books on like mysticism. So she really got into that. Um, But to maintain her privacy in school and to make sure no one caught her reading like these books on like Indian (laughs) mysticism, she would sprinkle salt. I mean, not, not salt, sugar. She would sprinkle sugar outside of her door so she could tell if anyone was lurking outside because it would crunch and it's like mad respect, girl, but also ants. <laughs> how many ants? Bugs. How many ants were in that hallway? Ant. How many ants? Uh, I mean, listen, people didn't care about bugs back then. They just didn't. Because they were a natural. They were cohabiting basically with bugs. It's back not like then. there was air conditioning, so everybody left the doors and windows open. And mm-hmm. when that happens, you're like fruit flies, bugs, stink bugs. I mean, before they were invasive, but yeah. still. <laughs> um, also, callback. You talked a couple weeks about somebody like putting their book inside of another book. Like yes. this is so school time. Cecilia Payne. And remember when you said somebody was taken to like poor neighborhoods to learn that was um that was uh the french writer um madame lafayette okay so we said on that episode who the hell have we done a story about that before yes 
anybody who's listened to that, please tell us who we're thinking of. And Avery Bray was like, you're talking about your episode on Eleanor Roosevelt. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, thank you. We were drunk. You listened. Thank you. I appreciate so much. (laughs) <laughs> that anyone listens that closely to us because we're lunatics. <laughs> and somebody was um, like, no, what the thing you're referencing <laughs> is something that happened two seasons ago. You fucking psycho. Also, Casey, Casey totally called me out last weekend and he was like, you love the word lunatic. <laughs> I said, I absolutely do. Lunatic, arrest us. <laughs> Of wild, <laughs> that's wild. I also love interesting. bananas, and I say that's interesting. <laughs> I think it was interesting. I love that. that. I love that. <laughs> why the you, greatest hits? Why buy our CD now. Why do you listen to our podcast right after Miss Cleo? We have to cover her. <gasps> we have to cover Miss Cleo. Somebody okay, somebody request her for this okay. season. Okay, go ahead. I'm um, so sorry. <laughs> There's so many people we have to do still. Okay. Da, 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 da. And I love this. So she's sneaking books and then she's like, I need more shit because she's reading stuff about all of this mystic stuff and she's getting really into it. And so she writes to this stranger. She found like, I don't even know how she got this man's information, but he was a practicing Hindu and she wrote to him Asking him to send her some mandrake root because she had heard it had magical properties. <laughs> and this is a theme with her, as I'll get into later in a very exciting moment. She loves to write letters to strangers. <laughs> I think I'm going to start. I might start, too. That's a wonderful it call to action. nice. <laughs> um, as a person who sent out 10,000 wedding invitations now, I think <laughs> it would be fun. For how many weddings? Um, <laughs> 17. I just celebrated my second non wedding. <laughs> um, thank you to hashtag history for the well wishes. <laughs> um, I'm, <laughs> I told fiance Knowles, too. I was like, I'm very worried because every day we haven't gotten married, it's been an absolute delight. <laughs> and <laughs> what if the day we get married is fucking terrible? No, no, it's no. been perfect weather. We had such a good time. We. The first day we didn't get married, we had all of our family it was over. We beautiful had weather. Crabs. We had cake. And the second day, we had cheese for dinner in front of a fireplace. It was absolutely <laughs> incredible. And I feel like it's going to have like, I feel like poop is going to rain from the sky on our wedding day. We've been too lucky. But Trump is going to show up. He's going to show up <laughs> at your wedding. <laughs> and say, everyone needs to leave. I need to hold a Bible in front of the Clifton Mansion. Um, <laughs> and, and, say, and say Chronicles 1 instead of First Chronicles. The self-proclaimed Christian. <laughs> Oh my Ooh, god, okay. Sad lunatic. Um, <laughs> so, um, anyways, she wants the Mandrake group. And her father is just like, yeah, this girl fucking gets it. And he tries his heart he tries his hardest to kind of foster that whatever this spark is inside of her, despite his wife's very strict religious beliefs. <laughs> So her and her father spent a lot of time together and she loved to watch him sketch plans and blueprints for hydraulics engineering, whatever that does. And and exactly. And he would let her copy them. But he's also kind of strict about it because he's like, if you're going to copy them, I want you to do it right. 
So he was like, if your lines aren't straight, if, you know, they aren't even, whatever. He's like, you have to redo it. Get a straight edge. Get a straight edge. <laughs> Where is your ruler? Um, and in this right sense, <laughs> and in this sense, she said that her father was kind of overpowering and demanding, you know, and I can kind of see that because he's like kind of trying to be on her side, but he's also like, this is how you fucking do things. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think she had a kind of complicated relationship with him where it was like, you're the cool dad, but you're also really strict. Like you're not strict like mom. You're strict in your own way. It seemed kind of confusing. Um, but she also said that he was a real big practical joker and in one of her very favorite stories, she said that her and her father are walking down the street and he's like, watch this. And he just starts pretending to be a bishop of the Catholic Church. <laughs> and people start lining up and down the street to be blessed by him. And all the while, he's like winking at her. And Remedios just thought that this was the funniest fucking thing she's ever seen. And I think that this also started like a love of like performative art for her because she's like, oh, like other things can be like spectacles because him and I know what was going on. And those people will go home thinking they are blessed and like never be the wiser. Right. They're going to talk about it forever. Yeah, exactly. So... This all seemed to be kind of child's play, but when she was 12, she really started to take art seriously, and she was kind of trying to show people that she wanted to be an artist, so she painted this amazing portrait of her grandmother and kind of brought it to her dad, and he's like, shit, that's really good. If you really want to go to art school, we can try and make that happen, which was really hard at this time because very few women were allowed to go to art school in Spain in 1924. Right. But when she was 15, she was admitted to the Real Academia de Bellas Artes de San Fernando in Madrid. I hope, is it, I guess, yeah, anyways, Madrid. Madrid. And what year is this? You said 1924. 1924. And that is crucial because what that means is that she lived her adolescent years during World War I in Europe. Mm -hmm. This was not simple times, like, Rosa Parks was born on the precipice of World War One, was but was too young to register. Mm-hmm. Like this woman was living it in like her middle school years. Yeah, absolutely. That's in and in Europe and moving around. So she's not even like one central location. In one central location, like yeah, it's it's good to call to that date because it's like listen, yeah. this was not easy. It wasn't at all. Um, so. She's accepting this academy, which means she's moving to Madrid all by herself. And she could not have been happier. Um, this, But the thing was, this school was very strict. And they had a very specific style of teaching. They taught the classics. And you painted how they painted. And that was it. It kind of reminds me of that school in Annapolis, St. John's, where there are no majors. You just get a quote unquote classical education. So everybody takes the same courses. You learn Latin. You play croquet. That's like all I know. And it's like you just kind of learn like 
this very specific set of curriculum a general like social etiquette yeah. of a certain time period it's like finishing yeah. school it, almost. It, no it, it really is art finishing school yeah this is like art finishing school exactly um and over the years they had tried to weed out some of the troublemakers and the very same year that she started out they had just kicked out a real bad egg a young artist named Salvador Dali. <laughs> no. He broke too many art rules. Every single time <laughs> I talk to you about Salvador Dali, I tell you that I put him at the wrong place in history. Yeah. Because we have talked about him so many times. Several times now. <laughs> and I just don't understand. And we might have to just have like a miniature men's history podcast on our Patreon. I know. Just to like keep it going because there are certain people I just cannot understand but also enough has been said about them so i don't give a fuck exactly if i wanted to look it up i could Ugh, this if woman i want to look at melting clocks i will this woman i can't look up that's the no. problem yeah mm-hmm. okay so tell me more so she said of like her does ed- he have a clock <laughs> Sorry. she said of her education i took advantage of all that i learned in painting the things that interested me on my own which could be called together with technique the beginning of of a personality, which I kind of love. She's like, I'm learning the classics, but it didn't mean that I didn't have a fucking personality. Like this is the beginning of my personality. I didn't know what I wanted to do in the art world at first. And I'm learning that because I feel like sometimes like I just saw a trailer for a movie that it was like, you know, a young writer in New York. And then like all the people are like, you got a job like in a publishing firm like I thought that you wanted to write I didn't think that you wanted to like read other people's writing and it's like people have to still have jobs like it's all a connection and it's like I understand what the movie is like trying to say but it's also like it takes a lot of work to be a professional artist or writer and like sometimes you have to like fucking like learn shit and like work until you can make it a living but like my sister's published multiple stories and is a librarian and exactly that's her day job just because i have a job doing xyz doesn't mean i'm not a writer i am still a writer you can work at fucking burger king and still be a writer you know what what i do that's what i do like fuck off people trying to tell you that you're not a fucking what you are like my sister said that even she was like, I have just gotten comfortable with telling people I'm a writer mm-hmm. and not a librarian. Like I work as a librarian, but I am a writer. It's a different go. thing. It, totally yeah. different. No, it absolutely is. So. And I love this. She wasn't exactly like being rebellious. She found a lot of value in the technique. But again, she was like, I didn't let that stifle my personality like the kind of cliche is. Um, and her artistic personality was right in line with the up and coming art style called surrealism. So this art movement is kind of said to have started in 1917, but at the time world war world war one <laughs> was raging and the artists were kind of scattered. So it really started to gain momentum, um, after the war had ended. So that's kind of what it's also meant met with, which I didn't realize, I didn't know that surrealist art was kind of 
a product of like World War One ending. It was like a post World War One phenomena. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And people were like, we just lived through this thing that was very surreal. Nobody thought that that could ever fucking happen. And nobody knew what the fuck they were fighting no. for. That's the craziest shit about World yeah. War One. Nobody knew what they were fighting for. Nobody knew what these goddamn weapons were. Like everything was absolutely insane. And like trench fucking warfare. Yeah. Like, these young men. I mean, people coming back without half a face and yeah. then just being like here's your plastic covering for it and they're like i don't have a jaw now like, i'm phantom of the opera yeah and it's like it's just such an interesting time in history and i feel like it gets absolutely eclipsed by world war ii it does um so surrealist art came from this time period. <laughs> <laughs> good thing to know thank you katie you've educated um, me today you're welcome um but Right now, she's just having a good time. She loved meeting fellow artists. She's visiting the famous Prado Museum in Madrid. And she is just loving being independent. And in 1930, she got her diploma as a drawing teacher. And shortly after, she marries fellow art student that she met in the school, uh, Gerardo Lizarraga. And in 1931, they moved to Paris in search of the carefree poor artist bohemian lifestyle Patty. she was absolutely fascinated with french surrealism in particular so being in the city was an absolute dream they painted they went out to cafes to meet people she said the stimulating cafes of paris were like her hearth and trampoline which i've never heard it put like that but i kind of love it it's like this thing that feels really cozy, but also is going to like propel me, propel me because I feel like everyone knows that feeling of when something is just so stimulating that like you feel buzzed. Like, do you ever feel like high off of a conversation every Thursday? Like, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like your body is just electrified and like, that's how she fucking feels. And that's what I think she meant by hearth and trampoline. That's how she feels. Yeah, that's how she feels. Um, <laughs> Alabama. <laughs> it's how she feels in Alabama. Um, and <laughs> so they're in Paris. They're having a really good time. And they're there for a year. Um, but Lisa Raga got a job in Spain. And so the couple moved to Barcelona. Um <laughs> <laughs> that's a joke from Booksmart. I mean, it really is how it's pronounced. Barcelona. But like, Barcelona. Yeah. Um, I say it wrong. They moved to Barcelona, which, <laughs> you know, it's actually really fucking depressing is I should be there for my honeymoon right now. Oh, <laughs> stop. You, Americans I aren't allowed my, to travel. I booked my honeymoon to Barcelona for like right around this because yeah. it's going to be after my wedding and October travel. My October wedding. Um my God. Well two years ago at this time you were in the Netherlands and we were like sco that's true. scoping on a that's ring. That's true. We were like, does she have a ring I in know. picture? Um which is also great because I haven't cut my hair since I got engaged. So now the length of my hair can tell how long I've been engaged. <laughs> right. Because it I, was up to my chin when I got engaged. I helped fiance Knowles buy this <gasps> ring and leave for Netherlands the day before <laughs> this trip and um and of course I was demanding that we be at the airport seven hours early and we're like the ring's getting delivered <laughs> I was very mean at the ring place though I was like no they're getting engaged tomorrow so can yeah. you please just get the ring <laughs> I was being a real asshole oh my these gosh people. no 
it's fine. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no. I looked like a moderate white bitch, which was fine. <laughs> Really, Karen. As we please. learned last week, sometimes medium stressful weeks are <laughs> where it's at. Karen Jr., can you please um, leave the store? <laughs> okay, this is not about me. Um, <laughs> Everything's about you. <laughs> haven't, haven't we been there? So they both got jobs at this place called the Thompson Advertising Firm. Um, it was just also kind of cool that like they just get jobs in advertising, but they kept a very lively art circle, which is again, like you can do fucking both. Like I feel, and again, sometimes like graphic design and like advertising work is absolutely soul draining for like people who are in the arts. Oh yeah. But like, I think it was just, like early enough. She's like, Oh yeah, no, this is totally cool. And they really liked to create something called uh exquisite corpse art. Which sounds really weird. Have you ever heard of this? Sounds like Tim Burton to me. It does. So the first time I ever heard of Exquisite Corpse was actually in India. So Tess, you know exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) Okay. Um, I never participated in it, but our friend Donna would... I think it was her that started it. It's like, it was like a kind of writing circle. Like it was like a very like collaborative, creative, like writing process. And you can translate that into art. And basically when Romerios would do it, like each artist would draw an image or paste a cutout onto a sheet of paper and then kind of fold it to hide part of the image before passing it on to the next artist to do the same. And so they would basically be kind of like layering art on top of each other. And it would create this incredible piece of art. And it was a really amazing practice to kind of get people out of their heads and be like, art is not just what you want to create. It's about what we're all creating. And it's a really cool fucking thing. Um, And so I don't even understand that. Yeah. So in 1936, she appropriately exhibited with the logicophobics, <laughs> a group of artists who sought the union of art with metaphysics. And as she wrote, we are doing everything possible to make something fully surrealist. Uh, I don't really know what that means. It's a good I don't quote, know. though. It's a good sound bite. It's a good I'm not going to lie. Logicophobist sounds like... You're scared of logic? Yeah. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. Um, so, and the more she got into this kind of surrealist art scene, the mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. her life kind of reflected this avant-garde lifestyle. So like any good artist, she took on a lover, a fellow, because remember she's married now, <laughs> a fellow surrealist, uh, Esteban Frances. Um, but apparently everyone was cool with the situation. Cause I think her, I mean, her husband is also in the art scene. So, so is it like an open re- polyamorous or like an, just like an open relationship or I think at this point it's just kind of an open relationship. Like, you know, just like, yeah, I'm cool with this. You're cool with this. Like, let's do it. It, it seemed to me to be very, um, consensual. Okay. Um, but then shortly after this, she meets another artist, an activist. So this guy's a little bit more political. And his name is Benjamin Perret. And they run away to Paris together. <laughs> so so now it's like, bails. now she just bails. But again, 
she never divorced. And her and Lisa Raga, they just kind of stayed married on paper and they stayed friends. Like, I really don't think that there was any hard feelings between them. Hmm. I think they were just like, this is the circle we run in. This is our life. That's totally fine. Um, so they go off to Paris. But this time, she's living the true bohemian lifestyle. And she was not as amused. <laughs> because the first time, I think they had a little bit more money and they had stable jobs. And this time, they were literally just working on selling their artwork. So she's straight up boho straight up actually boho and like that's not fun it's it's the difference between privileged boho yes and like real life boho okay exactly and she said quote it is not easy to live on paintings in paris sometimes i did not have more food in an entire day than a small cup of coffee with milk i call this the heroic epoch that bohemian life that is supposed to be necessary for the artist is very bitter. So now she's kind of realizing, she's like, oh shit, when this is actually a necessity, it actually kind of fucking sucks. I love it. The quote of like the starving artist, it's like, I don't have to be fucking starving. Yeah. I can like work a nine to five and be an artist. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Okay. Um, But the really good thing that comes out of this time is that she gets introduced to the inner circle of famous surrealist artists. So again, they're all in this kind of bohemian lifestyle. Some are better off than others, but now she's on the inside, but she still never feels like she quite fits in. She describes feeling like, yeah, I'm totally on board with everything you're doing and everything you're saying. And she kind of loses her personality and she kind of writes it off as like, oh, no, no, I'm, I'm just I'm just more of a listener. I'm just trying to be humble. And when I was researching this, it felt a lot like she was going through imposter syndrome mm. of I think once she got into this inner circle this person who, in my opinion, never seemed to have many fears, suddenly became this intense wallflower. And she felt like she didn't deserve to be there. She's producing art and getting into the galleries and shows, but not nearly as much as much as she would go on to in the future. Mm-hmm. So she's just not really producing anything. And I think it's a part of her story that we can all relate to of like, this is where I wanted to be, but it still doesn't feel right. You know what I'm saying? Like, I've, this period in her life is so interesting to me because she's like, yeah, I'm in this hot new relationship. Yeah, I'm in Paris. Yeah, I'm poor. Yeah, I'm with all these surrealist artists that are super famous. But, like, I don't have a lot to eat. I don't have any money. I <laughs> am cold. It's a, like, it's a, um, it's a, where is my grind situation? Yeah. We ended talking about Rosa Parks about how we were so impressed by her grind. And it's like, at some point you can't stay up doing shit all night. At some point you're like, you know what? I'm 40 and I deserve to sleep at nine o'clock. Yeah. And I think she was just in this weird spot where she was like, I got to, you know, fucking Nirvana or whatever, like this this thing that I thought was going to be heaven and it is nothing like I thought it was going to be. I'm actually not happy. Um, but I also think that it kind of pushed her to expand her world a little bit 
So around this time, she kind of starts studying things like psychology, science, sacred geometry, um, and just all sorts of other cool shit because she's not really feeling as satisfied as she thought she would with the art world. So Mm. it kind of pushes her out of her comfort zone. But then everything comes to a screeching halt in 1940 when Paré is arrested. This is her boyfriend. He is arrested for his political beliefs by the French government. Oh, no. And because she is his romantic partner, she gets arrested and is thrown in jail for months in the winter in France. Ooh. Terrible. Shortly after they are released from jail, they're like, we have to get the fuck out of here. And... Nobody really knows exactly what happened to her in jail, but people say that she came back, like, very broken. She came up fucked up. Yeah. And, I mean, it's the winter. You might not be being fed. Nobody knows how women were treated in jail back then by the guards. Like, it's cold. There's no showers. There's no good beds. Like, and sleep deprivation does shit to people. Absolutely. So. Who knows? Once they got out of jail, they joined a group of refugees who were all trying to flee France, but getting proper documentation to get out was very difficult. Um, And they were already kind of like Spanish in France. So like it was extra hard for them. And they didn't really have the connections at this point to go into like an underground thing. Mm -hmm. So they wouldn't get the proper paperwork to leave France until about a year later in 1941. They had to wait a year just to get out of this fucking Damn. country. That's why when people are like, can't you just leave? Yeah. If the war's, yeah. if the country's having <laughs> a know. war, just why don't leave. you just leave? <laughs> and the thing is, like, they are literally seeing the Nazis come in and occupy this place and th- they literally cannot leave. There's nothing they can do. Because also, where are you going to go? A the other countries that are also occupied by the fucking Nazis. Well, like, and there are stories so. of people from Europe getting on boats that said they were taking them somewhere. And then they like docked off the coast of Cuba yeah. or off the coast of Florida. And then they weren't let in yeah. and they were sent back. Yeah. Back. Horrible. You thought you were free and nothing. Yeah. So I think that's why like when they were like, no, we're going to have everything in line. Like, they're like, we're bohemians. We don't give a shit about the rules. But they're like, no, for this, like, we care very much about the fucking rules. Like, I want to make sure that when I leave, I can get into the place that I want to fucking go. It was very scary. People were being sent back and murdered. Yeah. Coming off of boats. Yeah. Absurd and and horrible. Yeah. So November 20th, 1941, um, they boarded the Serpa Pinto in Marseille to flee war-torn Europe. The terror that she experienced at this time remained a really significant psychological scar. But thankfully, when they got to Mexico City, which is where they were going, they were like, we're getting all the way to just like North America. Like, I don't give a fuck where it is. I just need to not be here. So they go to Mexico and she gets to Mexico City and she is thriving She got a few jobs in commercial design, advertising. She's restoring artifacts. She also got a really cool job designing costumes for a ballet at some point. And she ended up spending 19, the whole just year of 1947 in Venezuela doing some French scientific study. She is just like, once she gets over here, she's just like, this is good. She's so... 
She gets across the Atlantic and mm-hmm. she's now just like bouncing around. Yeah. Central South America. I get you. I, she felt yeah. it. Yeah. And I okay. feel like she's kind of like how she was when she first got into college. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I feel like she's coming back to herself. Cool. Um, And another really, and she just feels, she feels so at home in Mexico. So she spends the year in Venezuela, but she comes back to Mexico City because she feels really at home there. And another really important aspect of her life at this time was that she fell into a group of people who she also felt really at home with. It was a group of European artists who had all fled the war. And she felt especially close to a couple people, English painter Lenore Carrington, photographer Katie Horn, and the French pilot and adventurer uh, Jean Nicole. Um, she was also meeting some really cool people such as Frida Kahlo. She met Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera. Which I is literally so just cool. reached for my phone in my back pocket to see if they existed at the same time yeah. because that was episode six. Yeah. Yeah. Frida Kahlo, a banger a long a time huge ago. Huge banger. Um, such a great episode. And she really felt like she got her spirit back, like her artist spirit back because she said, quote, for me, it was impossible to paint among such anxiety. In this country, meaning Mexico, I have found the tranquility that I have always searched for. She just like didn't even know how to not be fucking like anxious and overwhelmed. And she just felt like her anxiety like melted away. And I mean, can you had... imagine being in Europe no. between World War One, World War Two, and the whole in between? No, because it's a long time before America got involved in World War Two. Like Europe was suffering for a really long time. Yeah, and she was even like, I was a chain smoker in Europe. Once I got to Mexico, I like didn't feel like I needed to do it anymore. Because she wasn't stressed the fuck out. So she gets here and Lenora Carrington, Katie Horn, and Remedios would come to be known as the three witches. <laughs> Hell the fucking yes. Yes, because they loved doing art together almost as much as they loved engaging in pranks and practical jokes with one another. Um, apparently at one party, they took tapioca pearls, which are now most commonly used in like bubble tea and like bobos for like frozen yogurt bars. And they filled them with ink, like black ink. So they could mimic caviar and they served them at a party. All these fancy people were like "Mm, caviar. And it had ink all over their mouths, which sounds, frankly, absolutely insane to me because it sounds very close to, like, poisoning people. <laughs> oh, my God. Sounds fun. Sounds I think that's fun. like a really good time. Um, and they were also called the Three Witches because they also kind of joined a Russian mystic cult. Um, so all three attended the meetings of Russian mystics Peter Ospensky and George um, Gurdjieff. You love a good cult. I, <sighs> when you saw the word cult, did you die? I absolutely did. Okay. Well, <laughs> you love it. Allie, and to be you quite honest, it, <laughs> it never said cult. I, I absolutely it. assumed I that. It, it sounded like a cult it. to me, okay. so I put the word in there. Good. Perfect. Um, it's the occult. <laughs> it's the occult. They were absolutely inspired by Gurdjieff's study of the evolution of consciousness and Ospensky's idea of the possibility of four-dimensional painting. 
Ooh. I don't really know what any of that means, but apparently people kind of made fun of them for this. <laughs> hey, 4D is now a thing. 4D it really is. is a thing. Know, 5D is a thing. Go to Disney World. Get the seat that sprays you in the face. Not COVID safe have anymore. Have you been there? I <laughs> Have you been? Um, uh, are you rich enough to go to or, Disney World? Because <laughs> it's a million dollars a second. Uh, and <laughs> it's spend your entire life savings to have your kids pissed because you of can, humidity. <laughs> you can have a wedding or you can stand in a humid line for an hour and a half. Um, or so, buy a house. <laughs> or go to Italy and have a blast. <laughs> exactly. So, um, I don't know. People were kind of like, that's kind of weird, even for you guys. But they're like, we're witches. We don't give a shit. Um, (laughs) And at home, she loved to surround herself with like just small objects like quartz crystals, oddly shaped pieces of wood. And like there's this one story about how she like went out and got some moon flowers and like brought them home. And like Mm -hmm. just like she was very into like finding things and kind of making them sacred she's a crow and she no she absolutely is and <laughs> i kind of love this about her like she was like everyday things can have like magical powers and great significance like if i put it onto it which i think is like really fun and cool and also it feels very modern to me like i feel like there are a lot of people that do this like i just watched an architectural digest video with hillary duff and she was like there's my fucking crystal my daughter sits on it and charges herself up on it I was like, I don't know about that. I don't know anything about crystals. Listen, if it feels good to you, it feels it good. feels good. If it feels good to you, it feels fucking good. And I'm all in on it. Um, and I know that this sounds kind of cliche now, which, by the way, it fucking shouldn't. But I think that Remedios was a really spiritual person. And even though she got involved with a lot of different, like, movements, I honestly think that she just believed them all equally because in her mind, they didn't take away from each other. They just kind of complimented each other. Wait, somebody is allowed to be spiritual and not religious? <laughs> yeah. My God. I what? know. Pretty crazy. Groundbreaking. Pretty crazy. Groundbreaking. Because um, she lived in this kind of surreal, mystical world, but was also like a deep devotee of science. And she loved reading things by Darwin and Einstein. <laughs> 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 Don't you dare judge the way I say Alabama if you can't say Einstein. Einstein? Um, Einstein. Einstein. My God. Oh. Um, it's been a night. I also have to pee. Is, and she would like read things by them as much as she loved reading like su- like text about like Sufism. And like she would like hang out with those guys. It kind of reminds me of like, you remember when we did PJ Travers? I do. <laughs> it was not the best episode. It was not good. But she was always kind of like searching and always kind of falling into these like different groups and like these mystic groups. And also like, not that that's PJ kind of what she Travers was doing. Was shit. It just no, no, wasn't no, no, no. our best episode. It just wasn't our best episode. It wasn't our best episode. Um, because our listeners didn't plan it. <laughs> Apparently. JK, we've also planned some really good episodes. Um, but she just became a much more open person in Mexico and she started doing this thing where she would get a phone book and she would pick a random person in it and she would write them a letter saying hey I know you don't know me but I'm having a little party at my house this Friday I'd love for you to come by she would never sign her real name and she would just copy the letter and send it to multiple people and I actually have one of these letters 
And the whole letter is honestly really fucking funny, but it's too long. So I am just going to read the beginning and end to it. Dear stranger, I haven't a clue if you're a single man or the head of a household, if you're a shy introvert or a happy extrovert, but whatever the case, perhaps you're bored and want to dive fearlessly into a group of strangers in hopes of hearing something that will interest or amuse you. I am going to copy this letter and send it to another stranger as well. Maybe one of you will show up. If both of you came, it would be something extraordinary and unheard of. So until soon, maybe. On second thought, I believe I'm crazier than a loon. (laughs) Do not dream that the living room will be crossed by an aurora borealis or by your grandmother's ectoplasm, nor will there be a shower of hams or anything in particular happening. And just as I give you these assurances, I hope in turn that you're not a gangster or a drunk. We're nearly abstemious and halfway vegetarian. My mouth is a gap. <laughs> I and there's a whole middle part of the letter that it's equally as bonkers that who, I could not include. Who showed up to these events? No one. No <laughs> one ever showed up because these letters were absolutely insane because she was like, maybe you're a serial killer. Maybe I'm a serial killer. Who knows? Here's my address, <laughs> which, by the way, I think I actually came across a serial killer the other day, which is my absolute dream in a you know, absolutely like distant way. Were I never you, were you his type or her type, Allie or their type. I was walking out of a Home Depot with a spider plant and a just box of contractor bags, husky, okay. husky contractor black bags ones, and black a spider ones. plant. OK, and this person, that was what I was carrying. This man drove up to me and he said, those are great bags. And I said, aren't they? And he goes, you know, you can actually fit an entire human body in there. <laughs> it was Dexter. And <laughs> it was Dexter. It was Dexter. I was like, uh-huh. And then he drove away. And I told fiance Knowles when I got home, I was like, I absolutely encountered a serial killer today. He, Who he, says that to a stranger? He, he goes, was trying to confess you, to this you. This is the thing. He said, you can actually fit an entire human body in there. He wasn't saying like, I bet you could fit a human you body in actually. there. Because you can actually fit an entire human body in there. Jesus Christ. I love this guy. I hate Me him. Me too. But I love him. Um, I feel very mixed about it. Which Home Depot? Honey go? Um, Perry <laughs> <laughs> Parkway? Uh, Perry Parkway. Okay. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. Not Perry Parkway. Um, Joppa. Joppa. Joppa Road. Joppa Road. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The one by Joanne's Fabrics. <laughs> I, I understand. And, and Model Sports. And Model Sports. <laughs> <laughs> and Monster Mini Golf. Um, okay. Monster Mini Golf. R.I.P. I don't uh, think they exist anymore. They can't. It's inside. It's inside. It's too much. COVID. Um, um, I mean, thankfully, I did not get murdered that day. But also, my phone number is plastered on the side of my car, so it could happen any day now. Um, <laughs> it's okay. I'll throw you a big, a big funeral celebration. Mm, thank you. It'll be You're one welcome. thing we don't have to cancel. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, it depends on the resurgence in the fall of COVID. We'll see. We'll see. Um, but she saw these letters as kind of performing art, which I absolutely love. It's kind of like putting surreal art out into people's homes because it would be kind of a surreal thing to get a letter from a stranger and like 
spend the holidays with them because she was like, spend New Year's Eve with me. <laughs> that would be insane. But another fantastic adventure she's, she's taking around this time is with her good friend, Lenora. So they started writing these books of fairy tales, potions and recipes. And you can just absolutely see this time reflected in her work because a lot of her artwork has this very like gothic fairy tale feel to it because again she loves gothic architecture she loves science she loves astronomy she it just like loves all these things and you can kind of see that when she meets Lenora she's like oh my god you get it too and they just they write these two unpublished plays together in the exquisite in the exquisite corpse style um because another thing to note about Remedios is that she is also an incredible writer. So like the whole time that she's like doing all these insane paintings. And again, like, I mean, Allie hasn't seen them. I mean, did you see a couple when you Googled no. her? No, I so tried not to look. They are very like, they're kind of Salvador Dali-esque. But you know how Salvador Dali's paintings look very smooth? Mm-hmm. Hers are very like... They look almost like Renaissance style. They're oh, like wow. Renaissance surrealist paintings. Interesting. I can't wait to look it up. Yeah. And it's kind of, it, it also kind of reminds me of the background artwork of the Sleeping Beauty movie, the Disney Sleeping Beauty the, like, movie. The like layered. The very like layered and kind of like misshapen people and like they're kind of tall and willowy at times and like short and stout well sometimes. they were that and movie is the only movie done in that form yeah I mean, that's interesting so that you said that long. because they were like instead of like full animation or like full pixar mm-hmm. quote-unquote pixar mm-hmm. is what it was but they they were layering like transparencies on top of each other to create depth yeah and that's and the it, only movie they did that in and it's incredible like I can't wait till we do the story of Sleeping Beauty just so we can talk about that fucking movie. Um, But even when they were not writing together, they were often just like working collaboratively. Um, They were drawing from the same sources of inspiration, using the same themes in their paintings. And despite the fact that their work is extremely similar, there is one major difference. So Romerios' paintings are all about line and form while Lenora's work is about tone and color. So it's really interesting putting their work side by side because they just accentuate very different things, which again, I'm not an art historian. So like Charles knows exactly what I'm talking about. I frankly do not know what I'm talking about. Thank you, Charles. Um, (laughs) Which Charles is also like writing and like currently trying, like publishing on Twitter, like his... um, graphic novel like series that's so cool like slowly putting out like our listener yeah it's so cool so cool and i'm sure like marion rivera also knows exactly what i'm talking about because she fucking requested right there's just really cool art people there's really cool art people who know who are like yes i understand exactly what you're saying this is the reason Um, i want you to talk about though i copy and pasted (laughs) um And I think the most beautiful thing about Lenora and Remedios is that they were really just like true best friends who complimented each other. And I love female friendships like that. I just absolutely do. Uh, Then in 1950, she did marry again to a friend of hers, a businessman named Walter Gruen. They really liked each other and... I just think it was really nice that like in this relationship, she kind of had her own separate art world 
And he just supported her because that wasn't his world. He's like, yeah, I'm a businessman. I do X, Y, Z and you do X, Y, Z. And like, they are not the same X, Y, Z, but we can still fucking hang. And what he was there to do was emotionally and like physically support her. I love it. So, and she had really never like had that. You know what I'm saying? It's like always a been somebody partner. in the same career as her. Yeah, exactly. So this is the first, like, I see you, I respect you, but this is not my crowd. Yeah, and it was just really nice for her to, like, not really worry about money anymore because he had it. And it allowed her the time and space and comfort to create most of her iconic artwork. So she settles down into this new lifestyle And by 1955, this is just five years after they got married, she had her first solo show. Whoa. In Mexico City. She only showed four paintings, but people raved about them. And all of a sudden, she is being met with this incredible financial success and glowing critical acclaim. She is the goddamn toast of Mexico City. Everybody loves it. Overnight. Overnight, people are like, oh, my God, have you seen Romero Sparrow and her surrealist paintings? They're fucking incredible. And the newspaper Excelsior noted her, quote, spiritual and technical courage so superior to what is ordinarily seen. They also described her fervent meticulousness worthy of Flemish primitive at the service of an imagination bathed in the most exquisite poetry. I mean, she sells that artwork so fucking fast. Now there is literally a line of people, like a wait list for people to get just anything she's willing to paint them. People just want a piece of her artwork. It's insane. She has a second solo show at the Salon de la Arte de Mujer in 1958. But by 1960, her art is so in demand that her agent, Juan Martin, opened up a gallery just for her artwork it's incredible i mean people only they just wanted a piece of her like magic they absolutely did but it still wasn't enough and in 1962 he had to open up a second gallery just for her artwork because people wanted to see it they wanted to experience it they wanted to fucking buy it which was really great for her 1963 everything comes to a crashing halt because Romero Sparrow died very, very suddenly from a heart attack. All of a sudden? Oh, I mean, was that where you thought this was going right now? I did not think that she was about to die. She dies. Usually you wind down. I know. She's literally at the height of her career. She's at the height of her personal relationships she's happy with her romantic partner she's happy with her friendships she's super fucking happy with her career she's cranking out the best artwork she has in her entire and life I mean, what is she in her 50s it was 1963 she was born in 1908 yeah she's like she can't be more than in her 50s like that's a shitty age to die it's a really terrible age to die so she dies from a heart attack and i mean that's fucking it i mean Following her death, she and her work quickly become absolutely legendary in Mexico, even being dubbed the sorceress who left too soon, which is why this was called the uh, Cirilla Sorceress. Um, And 
the art critics called her one of the most individual and extraordinary painters of Mexican art, which I also kind of, it's, it's really interesting because she really wasn't Mexican. Mexican, but I think because she drew so much inspiration from that scene in that crowd, like they're like, no, like you're one of us. We'll adopt you. We'll adopt you. It's like what we did to Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bringing it back. Bringing it point. Is that um, a point? That's a very big point. Um, and she had solo retrospectives of her artwork. Um, they opened in 1964, 1971, 1983. I mean, people just kept wanting to put on exhibitions of her art. A major book, Obras de Romerios de uh, Varo, was published in 1964. So this is kind of like a book, like about her life and her artwork. Um, it sold out every single copy. They reprinted it three times and it sold out every single copy. And it is now a very highly valued collector's item. Wow. It's like a fucking Beanie Baby in 2005. Shit. Like, unbelievable. The collectible ones. The Mm -hmm. holiday ones, even. Mm -hmm. My. And even though Romerios never thought of herself as a feminist many art critics see very feminist themes in not only her artwork but the way she lived her life so people point to her relationship with Lenora as this incredible example of creative female friendships which has actually directly inspired other female artists to create collectives and which I think is really incredible. Like people are like, I saw that and I thought, yeah, like women should be fucking supporting each other and collaborating and just like Remember lifting Diablo each other up. Cody has yeah. that friend of like the three friends mm-hmm. that sit together and write movies. Yeah, absolutely. And that's exactly what she had. So cool. And so cool. She Female also, friends are irreplaceable. Absolutely. And she also has really interesting themes of feminism and gender interpreted in her paintings. So she often painted images of women confined in spaces, achieving this sense of like isolation, which people translate as to how women often feel in relation to the patriarchy and how she probably felt when she was feeling like an outsider in France. Like I picture her in France again, feeling this imposter syndrome and like not knowing what to call it and just being like I don't understand what it is but I feel like I'm in a fucking box Mm. and the figures in her painting also have this like almost genderless form so she places them in what critics call a middle area because for so long women's bodies have been this erotic artistic space for men because it's almost like the human body is this thing that like almost like you own and she's kind of saying like well i'm just gonna get rid of the body altogether and basically just allude to person you know to be quote freed from monolithic sexual interpretation so she's like i'm just creating fucking forms it's and just like a person it's it just, doesn't matter the it's gender. just person and okay. like people it's like very revolutionary to some people because like anyone can kind of see themselves in this form because there's no clear gender lines because there doesn't have to always be which again is this kind of forward thinking mentality of like we don't have to have these strict gender lines all the fucking time we can get out of that and if we can appreciate it in artwork why can't we appreciate it in fucking life i mean for sure 
So, and again, I am not well educated in art or art history or anything like that. So those interpretations came from articles I read about her art. But again, the cool thing is that art can be reinterpreted as many times as we want. So I just want to employ you to take a look at her work and see what you find there. And that's the story of Remedios Vados. How interesting. <laughs> I know. I she has a it. really interesting story. It was, I mean, it's very cool to learn about a woman that I've never learned about. And yeah. it's just, it's always eye-opening to sit in a space that, like, you don't understand. I don't understand the job. I don't understand mm-hmm. the, like, ethnic background. Yeah. I don't understand the time period. And I just have no touch base. And it's still so relatable. That's the thing. And I and I think that that's what she was trying to translate with her art is like we don't have to have any sort of touchstone, but this art is our touchstone. Mm. And like you can translate what you need to from this. I'm not trying to make a political statement, but if you want a political statement from this, like you like go for it. it. Like so. So, yeah. So So I think we need to talk about these two women in a little segment we like to go just the two of us wow i'm not gonna lie this is kind of a hard one it is um i thought one of the really interesting things you said early on was how the church made her feel claustrophobic Mm -hmm. and for rosa parks the church awakened her Mm. like for her it was like uh, they're teaching me that i should be equal and i think um that that serves as both a compliment and a very big criticism to religion that if you end up in the wrong um denomination you can be or sect you can be just totally disenfranchised and feel like you're wrong and you're a sinner and you're a bad person and you're closed in or you can be empowered to like move on like her book quiet struggle is her memoir Rosa Parks's, but it's it's mostly about her connection to religion and by God, like go for it, girl. Like I'm not a big religious person, but if that's you that was her touch point and it sounded like you were your person was just hating it. Well, yeah, because I think when Rosa Parks is experiencing it, I think that she's experiencing it a little more evolved because you have Remedios in this very like traditional European Spanish Catholic world where (laughs) this is kind of the base of where people learn patriarchal structures Mm. is like old world religion. Yeah. And uh, so the things I think that Rosa Parks was experiencing in the greater power structures of the NAACP, I think that those all translate from what Remedios was experiencing in person. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. It's like you just have a different world. It's like she's still in the first world experience. And then you have things kind of a couple years removed, even though they aren't that far apart in age. Actually, it's kind of insane. It is. (laughs) It's very, it's But you have the power structures passed down and you can even translate it into like colonialization and like colonialization went across the world and then you have these european people being like no 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 no, men are in charge and then it just seeps into the culture and it's the weight that we were talking about earlier it's that weight on your shoulders but they both also wrote letters to people they didn't know 
Yeah. And it was funny because, is it Romerios? Um, yeah. So it's kind of like Remedy. Okay. Remedios. Remedios. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Remedios is writing and they're quirky and they're fun and they're yeah. like, it's almost like, and, and I'm not saying she was a privileged person, but it's almost like the privilege is seeping through. Like, yeah, I'm no, an artist is. and this is exciting and come to my house and I'll like give you a drink. And like Rosa Parks is like writing to people she doesn't know going, this is sexual assault. Don't you see this is sexual assault? Why can't you see a sexual assault? Like those are yeah. two different types of letters to get in the mail. They absolutely are. And I feel like Rosa Parks is saying like, this is life or death. And then you also have Remedios being like, this is life or death. You could be a serial killer. I could be a serial killer. <laughs> With Rosa Parks, it's like, no, there are actual killers on the loose and actual rapists who are like doing really fucking bad things. And like, I'm trying to alert you to that. And it is kind of the different way, like how we see different forms of activism because Remedios didn't consider herself an activist, I don't think. But we can gleam activism from what she did. And well, then, you said that she did performance art. Yeah, she did. And performance art is nothing but activism. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's what civil disobedience is. Yeah. But they just had such different purposes in doing it. And uh, again, one of the things that really strikes me is that they, again, were around the same time. We're not talking about... 1800s and 1900s we are talking about like a couple years apart Mm -hmm. and the difference in their situations because they were just in different geographical areas is really stark to me and the fact that they kind of operated so differently and Remedios didn't she didn't really have to make any political stance because like there were some times where like she definitely felt uncomfortable and like she struggled, but like ultimately besides like, you know, what was going on in France at the time with the Nazis, like her life was never as at stake as with Rosa Parks. Right. Like Rosa Parks is actively experiencing this is unjust. And like, again, Remedios she did get arrested for absolutely nothing in France. She got arrested for like her, she got arrested for her boyfriend disagreeing with the French government, which is still really crazy. But again, like things were kind of in flux over there. Whereas they were kind of status quo in the U S yeah, it was like, you can still get out of here. Mm -hmm. But in the U S it was like, there's no way out and there's nothing you can do. And I felt like they were both kind of working from the inside out. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm saying? I do. I do. I mean, and I loved the just the word surrealism. Yeah. Because I could imagine. Okay. So like, and I am sure this is what so many people of cover, color thought over the years. They show up to a place and they're not allowed or they can't do this and they can't do that. And they're just sitting there. In the back of the bus, like, is this even real? Yeah. Is this real? And then if I was thrown back in history, like, let's say a time machine existed and you put me back in time in Montgomery, I would just be like, I, it, is this happening? Like, 
I don't understand. Yeah. And I think that's the way surrealist art is. You look at it and you're like, is it happening? But some of it seems real. Like you talked about the gender lines. Like, yeah, it seems like I could put myself in it. But is it actual? Yeah. It's like, that's a person, mm-hmm. I think. <laughs> and it's like, that's what people were doing to black people in the South at that time. Like, that's a person i guess but like not really you know what i'm saying and like they're taking surrealist in the negative sense of like yeah your reality is that you're not human and their reality is like no i absolutely am Mm -hmm. and you have conflicting realities all at the same time and the only difference with remedios is that she's painting it to kind of expand on like, yeah, people are in different fucking realities all the time. And then Rosa Parks and all these people who are part of these civil fucking changes, you know, are like, I'm living it. This feels surreal because it should be. That's the difference. What Rosa Parks was going through should have been surreal. It shouldn't have been fucking reality it shouldn't shouldn't have been the life that she was living yeah it's like i'd rather be on a fucking boat of leaves surrounded by crows like in a goddamn remedios vado painting (laughs) rather than experiencing this right now and asking a police officer why are you arresting me and they say i I don't don't know know. yeah it's like (laughs) is that is this real yeah yeah i I mean i think that's the biggest connection the idea of surrealism because like it, it shouldn't be real yeah. What happened to Rosa Parks should not have happened in any scope of the imagination, but it did. Yeah. And I think that's the problem with young white kids thinking it was over in one day. Yeah. We because were, we were taught it, that was the, what was real was she said it was wrong and everybody said, okay, ma'am. And it's like, that's not what happened. Yeah. She was fucking had to move out of the city because she out of Montgomery because she couldn't get a job and was getting death threats, actually. Yeah. And that, again, I think it's very cool that we ended up talking about different realities because different things can be true for different people all at the same time. <laughs> like was Montgomery like a totally fine place to live for some people? Absolutely. Sure. That's true. But was Montgomery a really dangerous place to live for certain people? That is also true. I love and the idea that there were these, well, sorry. I cut no, 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 no. Go for it. There's these white women who needed their help. So they're putting on sunglasses and like a scarf over their head to like hide themselves to pick up these black women because they're like, oh, my God, if I don't get the house cleaned and the kids reared and the dinner cooked, my husband's going to beat me. Yeah. Like their life is like and I know like white women are were so also culpable in the horrible horrible segregation but it's like their life is also in the balance between my husband's gonna beat me and i need this black woman to raise my children for me yeah well and like horrifying it was really interesting because just this week i heard this these stories about like how there are like women across the u.s who are like defying their husbands and like secretly voting for like the Democratic nominee because they don't want their husbands to know um, because they're voting for Trump. I mean, let's be honest, too. White women like overwhelmingly also voted for Trump in the last presidential election, which is like one of the reasons we're in this fucking position, um, which is very upsetting. Also, I am getting my mail-in ballot in the mail very soon. Hope you guys are Mine's also here. voting this we can year. We'll take a picture with we'll it. We'll take a this picture. Evening. I have mine um, Please right fucking now. vote. 
Um, there was a girl from my high school recently, like just the other day, that was like, I'm so sick of seeing all these things telling me to vote. I'm just not voting. I was like, what? <laughs> like, what? All right. Mm, okay. So anyway, we'll talk about that when we go off. We air. Need to talk about that I'll talk about it with air. you in a minute. Um, but but yeah. It's just shifting your reality is so important because if your reality doesn't include other people's suffering, then what? Then then it's not then frankly it's not real empathy. because you don't have empathy. You have to practice empathy in order for your reality to be worth fucking anything it's the walk a mile in my shoes argument yeah and it's like i just think there are so many people that are like my reality is that like i don't fucking like people that are different from me and that's okay and it's like no it's not actually because there's a lot of people for your reality to exist other people shouldn't exist so you want literally people to not exist for you to feel more comfortable welcome to the nazi party like welcome to the nazi i don't know what you like you like what so i i honestly didn't know how this these two people were gonna mesh together and i actually think it turned into something very interesting i do too surrealism is the word it really is because yeah it's absolutely surreal that we're in a pandemic that we are facing the possibility of another four years of a Trump administration. Yeah. It feels, to put it in my own personal words, absolutely bananas. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> hey, listen, to put it in Rosa hey, Parks' listen. words, it's nice that you thought of me. <laughs> <laughs> so, think of other people this election day. Um, Soon. Earl, vote early. Please. Get your ballot. Early, if you don't know what you're doing. Mail, if you don't know what you're doing. This, this is the end of the line. This is the end of the Yeah. And listen, I, look, I know it's not time to go third party, but if you want to vote for Joe Jorgensen, fine, whatever. But just vote. Like, just not for Trump. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> it's like, now's not really the time for a third party, but, like, also a vote against Trump is not a bad thing. But, like, you know, it was funny just, because I was like so <laughs> pro third party, like, and I I've never actually voted third party, but I was like understanding of it. And yeah. then Michelle Obama like gave this rousing speech. Have you seen it? I heard her on a Conan O'Brien podcast recently, and She's I was like, just it is so moved. She, she yeah, because she said that in, in the podcast. She was like, "This is not the time to like fuck around for a protest with- vote. <laughs> like yeah. a protest vote is very powerful, and I understand it, and I agree with it because a two party system is shit. It absolutely." is uh but trump is a real serial killer and rapist yeah (laughs) this guy really political he actually knows how many bodies you can fit into a husky contractor bag (laughs) um (laughs) i don't know really if he's killed anybody but he's definitely raped some people absolutely um we gotta toast we have to toast these women Allie. who are you going to toast this evening okay a rosa you're a hero Mm, absolutely b I want to toast everyone who's been treated different differently because of how they look. So mm. obviously racism is an extreme case, but you know, perhaps you're a person with a physical disability or someone who struggles with your weight, or maybe you have alopecia or acne, or you have two different color eyes or like whatever it is that people look at you or gawk at you or like talk about it. It's, it's hard to put yourself out there in public every day when you know that, 
people are just going to be mean and in many cases wrong. So I just want to thank Rosa for realizing that there was nothing wrong with her. Mm. So there's Cheers. nothing wrong with you guys. No. Cheers. Katie? I'm going to toast. And I don't know if this is going to make any sense, but satisfied searchers. So Remedios Faro just just kind of strikes me as a woman who was just like searching her whole life, but also for the most part seemed pretty satisfied, especially like when she got into like her life in Mexico. So there were definitely times where she was in a really rough spot, but I think spiritually she was always satisfied to never have an answer to the big question. And I just think it's a really important lesson in there's always things to learn she was never like this is the answer and I'm okay with that she probably joined a thousand cults and she was like I'm getting a little bit from all of these because you have to continuously learn to grow as a person and whoever is telling you that they are 100% sure of probably literally anything and like know what they're doing they're lying <laughs> ali posted this week this beautiful post that was just like i don't know what the fuck i'm doing i don't know if that's exactly what it said but it pretty close it inspired me so much because ali is someone who i don't know if i ever told you this but i have a friend who is terrified to meet you because <laughs> she's like she's like every time you talk about your sister-in-law she just seems like the most incredible person and I go well she is but then but she's I also like, have no idea what I'm but doing that's <laughs> the thing it's like, and that's the whole thing is like nobody actually does and if we all just said that a little more often the world would probably be a better place <laughs> I have no idea what's happening I just wake up and I just I I want to toast people who have no idea what's fucking happening, but are also okay. okay. Success <laughs> comes in all shapes really and forms. Oh, are right. you ready for promos? I'm ready. I almost forgot we had to do them. Uh, we'll do so fast because we're <laughs> we'll going to do it along. really fast. Okay. So, um, me and the girls on Netflix watched the new Enola Holmes. Oh, I heard it's so good. I want to watch it. So it's so good. It's so empowering. She's <laughs> obviously, um, you know, Sherlock Holmes is and Minecraft's little sister, because if you haven't read the series, Minecraft is se Sherlock's older brother. Sorry, okay. that's a spoiler. That's I don't know. He's like seven years older than him, but it was great. And the girl who plays Eleven, Millie Bobby, Bobby friend, Brown, Brown, Brown. <laughs> Millie Bobby Brown. <laughs> I couldn't get there. Um, she plays Enola Holmes and it's just like fun to see her in a speaking role. <laughs> for once where she has <laughs> things to say um and helena bottom carter is uh. her mom and it's just it was so good it was fun to watch it with my girls and i am big on making my kids read books before they watch the movie and i knew a whole enola holmes was a book series but i was just like you know what it's on netflix it's friday night yeah. like let's all watch a movie together and we watched it and now they're just like begging for the series <gasps> but I'm going to ask your dad to get them <gasps> oh for them God. because I think it'll mean more. If you've listened to this podcast, you know that um, Katie's dad, my father-in-law, is like obsessed with Sherlock Holmes. He absolutely. So is. I feel like if he buys them this six book series, it <sighs> will be so much more meaningful. It really like for them to get it would love that because yeah. let me tell you, every grandfather for all time has never known what to get his granddaughters. No. 
or grants like nobody knows <laughs> again like, what's cool nobody now? knows what the fuck they're what's doing cool? <laughs> um i remember one time i thanked my grandparents for getting me a pair of green vans for christmas and they go what <laughs> what your mom bought over yeah my mom bought <laughs> yeah. and it was just one of those things i was like oh that's right grandparents don't actually pick up the presents yeah. like and it would be so nice to just be like this is what to get them and because he he's so it. into that yeah. and he could really connect with them on it i fucking love that yeah. i'm also glad i thought it was going to be another mini series and i love that it's just a fucking movie it's one movie it's and you movie. know what if they do the other movies fine but they don't have to it's yeah. all-inclusive movie ah, i love it perfect watch it it's great Ugh. it's very feminist it's very fun mm. okay what do you got Mine is so dumb and so lame, but also so quick. Um, I've been eating a lot of hard-boiled eggs recently, and it's really changed my life. They're so good. They're so on good. Um, I have them on a salad in the mornings. So I've been having just – because, like, so in Amsterdam, the, the, they always had this breakfast where it was, like, just, like, a nice piece of toast and, like, just a piece of hard cheese, not, like, melted or anything, just a piece of hard cheese, and then you put a hard-boiled egg over on it, maybe some ham – and it sounds was like my fantasy fantastic <laughs> so like this week i've just been doing like a piece of like you know nice like sourdough or like wheat toast and then a hard piece of white cheddar a tomato arugula a hard-boiled egg and if you do it in an instant pot it takes five minutes to make your hard-boiled eggs absolutely perfect so i'm just going to promote hard-boiled eggs because they're a fantastic way to start your morning <laughs> And with protein, if they you're not a vegan, are delicious. And I'm deeply apologetic if you're a vegan. Um, this promo is not for you. If you're a I'm vegan, so just watch Nola Holmes. Just watch <laughs> Nola Holmes if you're a vegan. Um, but yeah, that's it. So thank you for listening. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That is the best way to show Talk us that to you us care. Anywhere. Talk to us anywhere. Request someone. We'll get to them eventually. <laughs> We're working really hard on it, actually. Um, Thank you to all the people that have requested so far. We love you. And to all the people that have rate and reviewed us, follow us on everything. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, all over the place. And if you're a Patreon, then oh. your your gift is currently coming in the mail. They were just mailed oh. this week. And Avery, you're getting your card. Yay. So. so thank you so much. And we want you to never forget that well-behaved women stab themselves in the eye very rarely with liner pencil. Whoa. I don't know anything. I haven't used liner in a long time because I'm terrified of it. Because you would stab yourself. Because I would stab because you're not well behaved. Because I'm not well behaved. But we, but we are. No, we're not. And we rarely make history. No, but we do. Make <laughs> but history. we do make history. They don't make. History. They don't make. We history. make history. Well behaved. <laughs> <laughs> they rarely make history. Goodbye. <laughs> You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.